This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is gathered and we're doing what we can uh, to give you the, the life you need, the life, by golly, you deserve to live longer, to love stronger, to lead a healthier life. Welcome to the program. we got a lot to cover. Today we're going to be talking about American character. Uh, we're going to be revisiting an interview where we talked about the history, that, that epic struggle between individual liberty and the common good. How much uh, do we focus on you as a, just an independent being versus how much do we owe to each other because we're all in the fellow struggle or the, the shared struggle with each other. So we'll be reviewing that uh, interview. Also a lot uh, to talk about. Apparently Kim Jong-un taking the, uh, the awesome green train to China. Uh, nobody knows for sure because nobody's talking, but there's a lot of security, and the train that his daddy built is now in China. Wow. That's pretty exciting. It's exciting news. It's the first time Kim Jong-un, if it is Kim Jong-un, Who could it be? has left the country. It's got to be Kim. Kim or his sister. You think his sister went up there? I don't know. I bet it's Kim. Okay. Who wouldn't want to go to China? And apparently there's police like every block. Yeah. Along the route. They cleared out Tiananmen Square, which they only do when there's important meetings going on. So there's all these indicators, but Something's, no one's saying No one's saying is. anything. And they say they won't until he's gone, whoever this dignitary is. That's their protocol. That's how they work there. Pretty Seems cool. strange. It is, it is a little bit strange, except, you know, that's how you'd want it, right? I mean, if you were Kim Jong-un, let's just put you in Kim Jong-un's shoes for a minute. Hmm. Wouldn't you want to just... Sneak away to China. Well, they don't want protests. Yeah. And there there would be, even though they, they control things so much, there would still be protests if he showed up. So maybe that's probably there. I was trying to think, why wouldn't you publicize this? North Korea, this, this their leader, yeah. since, being, since taking over, has this is the first real world leader he's met with. In fact- Other than Dennis Rodman. Well, yeah, right. Uh, real world leader. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the 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 thing is though they 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 really believe it's him because at every stop along the train route I guess that they had to refuel but they also had to get more lobster oh and apparently more wine or champagne or something oh I, okay I thought they knew who it was because of the Hello Kitty backpack mm. well and there's that big Hello Kill, Kitty sticker on the side of the train that kind of dead giveaway but then again is it his sister or is it Kim Jong Un. Hmm. It's an exciting uh, thing, though, because this may be saying, you know, maybe he's much more open to creating some changes. I think he wants to be a world traveler more than maybe he wants to be a despot. Doesn't he want both? <laughs> he actually would probably need both yeah. to make both happen. But anyway, that's the excitement going on. Plus, uh, uh, President Trump, um, he's he's offended President Putin, along with what twenty something other countries, have offended him by ejecting. Yeah. Uh, except New Zealand. Except New Zealand. They couldn't find any Russians to kick out of New Zealand. So <laughs> that's what they said. Keep looking, boys. 
All right, let's get to the rest of the headlines. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? The Russian foreign ministry called the decision by the U.S. and 14 EU nations to expel Russian diplomats an unfriendly step and a provocative gesture. In a statement Mm. Monday morning, the ministry said that the measures which expelled 60 diplomats in the U.S., over 30 in Europe, are not consistent with the goals and interests of finding answers in the attack on that uh, former Russian spy living in the UK and his daughter, who was poisoned by a nerve agent earlier this month. They also claim that other countries blindly followed the British authorities, who were also expelled 23 Russian diplomats earlier this month. The ministry stated that the latest developments is a continuation of the confrontational policy to escalate the situation, and they will respond to it. Whoa! The U.S. is ready to cooperate. And forge a better relationship between our two countries, says John Huntsman, U.S. ambassador to Russia, in a video released in Moscow, but that uh, will only be possible when Russia chooses to become a more responsible partner. Well, boy, John ought to be careful because he could be one of the first ones to go. Yeah, pretty much. Well, they won't take out, like, the main guy. They'll take out staffers. John's people. Make it difficult for the ambassador to actually Take out his driver. That's what you you do. Always take out. And he's got to drive himself. Uh, other news: President Trump's approval ratings has rebounded to its highest level since the 100-day mark of his presidency, according to a new CNN poll. Uh, even his approval rating for handling major issues remains largely negative. Overall, 42 percent approve of the way Trump is handling the presidency; 54 disapprove. Approval is up seven points since February, including a six-point increase among Republicans from 80% to now 86%. Hold on. 86% of Republicans approve? Yeah. Independents went from 35% to 41% now. Wow. He's, he's, he's making everybody happy now. Trump's approval rating remains below that of all his modern-era predecessors at this stage of their first term after being elected, though Trump only trails Ronald Reagan and Barack Obama by a narrow four-point margin at this point in their first term. Wow. So, see, I don't know what everyone's complaining about. Right. Everyone's fairly happy. I mean, everyone that should be. Yeah. The state of California filed suit late Monday against the Trump administration, arguing its decision to add a question about respondent citizenship status to the 2020 census is a violation of the U.S. Constitution. The Commerce Department announced Monday night that for the first time since 1950, the census will ask people if they are citizens, a pledge made in the early days of the Trump administration, which claimed the step was needed so it could better enforce the Voting Rights Act. Critics say uh, including the citizenship question will discourage non-citizens from filling out the census, leading to a population undercount that could affect the distribution of funds and the drawing of congressional districts. The census numbers provide the backbone for planning how our communities can grow and thrive in the coming decade, Attorney General from California said. Uh, What the Trump administration is requesting is not just alarming, it's unconstitutional. It's an unconstitutional attempt to discourage an accurate census count. Yeah, this is this is kind of strange. This hasn't been done for what twenty or thirty years. Nineteen fifty. Oh, really? That yeah. long? Yeah. Let's change the rules. Now, this is a little worrisome too because um, if they're not citizens, then I guess they still get representation, right? And they still get supposed benefits and allocation of benefits. So. Maybe we need another way to measure all of this. I believe there's another 
uh, poll, like census type uh, ga- gathering information that happens. Yeah, that they're saying that this information will get picked up in, so it's okay. You know what we need? But people we, are like, we, we need our census expert, uh, Jeffrey Liam Simpson, who. I mean, many. This is this is weird because many times we don't get to fall back on Jeff's talent as a census taker. My ears are burning. <laughs> um, My census taking ears are burning. So, do you have anything to say about all of this? Um. Well, it's important that you take the census, okay. that you submit your information. Yeah. And if you don't, I'm going to come looking for you. Well, that's scary. There you have it. Uh, that's that's an update from our census taker, <laughs> Jeffrey like a Liam Simpson. Jackbooted thug comes to the door. <laughs> Back to you, Terry. Uh, finally, it's no, it's a known fact that yoga is good for the body. Is that true? Yeah, that's what they say. Yeah. Is yoga good for the yeah, body? The squatting dog is very good for the body. But did you know it's also good for preventing fine lines and wrinkles? For who? People who, as is founded a decade ago by Japanese yoga instructors, the anti-aging method comprised of facial exercise is said to be the newest natural approach for fighting off those pesky fine lines, which can be done from the comfort of your home. Hmm. It's called face yoga. Oh, boy. Really? Do you have to wear yoga face pants? There are more than 600 face yoga instructors in Japan. Face yoga is a great natural alternative to Botox or plastic surgery because did you know that only 20% of the entire facial muscles are actively used by regular facial expression? So the idea of face yoga is to wake up those sleeping muscles, said a face yoga instructor in Washington, D.C., because apparently there are a bunch of face yoga, uh, what are they, businesses opening, gym? Um, They're not really gyms. MLMs. Yeah, it sounds like it. But you go in. They show them in, the, in these clips. They sit down and you just make exaggerated facial expressions. I think Joe Biden's done face yoga. The whole A-E-I-O-U thing yeah, that yeah. people do to warm up. Namaste. Joe, Namaste. Joe, Joe looks completely different since he started doing his face yoga. Researchers at Northwestern University, there's been research done, yes. found that middle-aged women look about three years younger after doing really? face yoga for several months. This is great. Well, okay. forget all those creams and lotions. Yeah. Just do yoga. Just work that face out. Maybe if you rubbed yogurt on your face while doing yoga. Oh, yeah. No, totally. Then you would go back in time, I think. My wife thinks this will just add more lines and wrinkles because you're stretching your face out. Hmm. Yeah. What happens like when all of a sudden somebody's roiding up their face? Yeah. And they've just got major face muscles. This, face rage. This is going to make the difference for Joe Biden. I think this is what's going to put him over the line. It's going to tip the scale. It's going to tip the scale, and he's going to be able to take President Trump in that schoolyard brawl that they've been yes. going at. It's going to be a yoga off. Hey, uh, straight ahead, folks. We're going to be talking about your individual liberty versus the common good. At what point uh, is it no longer about you and about us as a community? We'll be talking about it straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Woodard, author of the American character, A History of Epic Struggle Between Individual Liberty and the Common Good, 
explores America's regional cultures. His book outlines the political, ideological, and sociological predicaments that result in the differences between regional cultures. I had a chance to talk with him not long ago and began the interview by asking how we balance our individuality and our community. Right, because it's such an important issue. You know, the country is so polarized politically, and indeed the polarization is geographic as well. It it goes down almost to a regional cultural level. And so in American character, I was trying to probe that what is really at the core of the struggle and the fight that's been going on, not just in recent years and decades, but throughout the history of the American Republic. And it comes down to a, a fight about freedom, right? In general, the American story is about how to maximize freedom and create, you know, what scholars call liberal democracy, a democracy where, you know, you're aspiring for all individuals to have sort of universal, you know, freedom and autonomy. How do you do that? And the big struggles basically boil down to two camps, two ideas about how you do that. And there's various variations on it and subtleties, but the basic idea is, you know, when individual liberty and the common good come into conflict, on what side should you err? And there's a whole spectrum. On one side, you know, on the near flank, you have individualists who, who say that, you know, that the point is to have individual freedom, and therefore you want to remove encumbrances on the individual. On the other side, you have a philosophy that says that individuals can only be free if you've built and create and maintain the structures of society that allow that to happen, to allow individuals to be able to exercise their freedom in a world where for eons humanity has lived where, where um, despotism and uh, autocracy were the norm. Mm. There were no liberal dem- liberal democracy. The idea of mass freedom wasn't even an idea on anybody's agenda until, you know, a few thinkers 400 years ago. And, you know, we've been experimenting awkwardly with it ever since. For thousands of years of human civilization before that, that was not the case. So the idea is that, you know, that you have to build and maintain institutions. Each of those philosophies, though, in extreme, ironically, lead to tyranny, right? You can go down one path towards the common good and collectivism, where eventually you end up with all, you know, power and motivation being handed over to the keepers of the common good, you know, the state or the party or the fatherland, you end up in Nazi Germany or Stalin's Russia. But in the other direction, if you keep going towards a radical libertarian future, what's happened time and again in history is power starts accreting to a few individuals who maximize their individual freedom and take it away from everyone else. And you end up with a sort of oligarchy, you know, like late 20th century Guatemala or El Salvador, where, you know, the 10 families or the, you know, eight families in capitals have, uh, you know, taken over and maximized their freedom and own all the land and the courts and the army and get rid of anybody. Right. So both extremes are bad. So the whole book is about an exploration of our history, but about how you balance those two forces. Because if the extremes are bad, then in theory, there's a balance point for any society where those two essential aspects of freedom are in equilibrium. Where is it and what is it in the American context and, you know, going through history to try to understand it? Well, and can it be sustained? It seems like it seems like, you know, as I think about a scale trying to balance individual rights and common good, that's always in flux, right? So you might hit it for Absolutely. a day it and you're around. like, oh, we nailed it that day. 
<laughs> but the next totally day, right. it's out of whack again. But and it's interesting. You bring up a, 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 an interesting point about institutions. So then institutions are created for the common good and for the individual – to pull for the individual rights. And then the, the institutions go competing too. So it's not just yeah, it's people and ideas. Yeah. It's institutions. It's uh, parties, I guess. It's – um, it's it, it's a lot. Is it does it get to a point where because you say this is regionalized too? Yeah, because if you know we're talking about a, a, a culture and fundamental values, and the argument in the book preceding this American Nations and that this book is built on is that our divides are regional. You look you know look at those red state blue state maps and right. keep seeing the same patterns again. If you look closer at red state and blue, uh, blue, red county and blue county maps, it becomes even more profound. There are fissures that run through various states and are consistent through time. And over and over again in our history, um, you see um, whenever there's a closely contested election or issue, you see the split on the same fault lines. And the reason for that is those fault lines, those, those differences can be traced right back to early settlement patterns. Early migrations and the differences between the different settlement flows, many of them tied back to the differences between the initial colonies along the eastern uh, seaboard and southern rim of what's now the United States, which had totally different ideas about all sorts of things, including how you balance individual freedom and the common good. So the deep, you know, there's not an American consensus on it because each of our regions has a very different idea of where that balance point should lie, which has made our history really messy. And mm. you go to a lot of other peer liberal democracies, you know, go to, you know, France and Germany and Japan. And in those countries, you know, there are political differences, but there's broad consensus on the basic ideas of where the, you know, the mix and balance should lie. Not so here. And that's what makes our politics uh, particularly confusing and acrimonious, especially since people aren't really aware of the backstory and the reasons for all these. Oh yeah, well, and to and to just you know to bifurcate it into into these two ideas, you, you can see. Yesterday we had a discussion about um, about uh, property rights, really, but kind of kind of more about public lands and state lands versus. Um, you know, ranchers' rights. And so a lot of the right. West are frustrated with the D.C. bureaucracy because their individual rights are being taken away. And D.C. is saying, well, we're taking some of those rights, not rights, but your property away because we want to, for the collective whole of the country, need to have access to your lands. And so I, all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh, this is a battle about exactly what you're talking about, common good versus individual rights. Yeah, the public lands battle in the West, which is profound in your part of the country because the federal government owns so very much of the land. Yeah. But it you know, tracks to everything from, you know, gun control discussion is about the community's safety versus individual liberty. The uh, discussions over uh, women's reproductive rights right. are about individual liberties and, and common good, like broader moral values held by a particular community. It tracks to all sorts of things. And then it flips, it seems like, because it, blue and red states could be opposing you know, gun rights. So the red states may want more guns. We have individual rights for that. The blue states are like, well, yeah, but we all live together and we all die together by guns if they're out there. So it could flip. But then that those exact same states flip the opposite way where the blue states might be saying abortion rights, reproductive rights, and the red states saying that's not healthy for the whole. And it's it's interesting. And it's almost it's just polarized. 
yeah, it's funny how it can play out in some of those issues. Absolutely. It, but you do see that that dialogue on freedom over and over again, mm-hmm. you know, played out in our history. Even in the hearings, um, the Senate hearings with all of the cabinet members, you, you really there's this you see the, the polarization around individual rights. Are you going to protect the individual rights, Mr. Sessions, when you are attorney general? Or the or the exactly. rights of the whole. I mean, it really is. It's a pretty, I guess, universal truth here. A basic truth about our democracy. Which does it mean then inherently there's just tension built in? There is, but the the tricky. You know, for for long periods we've had relative stability. You know, from say 1945 to I don't know. 1965 or 1979, depending on how you want to look at it, there was fairly broad consensus in the middle on these kind of issues. You know, the, the sort of flanks of, uh, you know, tending a little bit towards individualism or a little bit towards community values. People kind of were tacking in the center through the Eisenhower administration and, and other times. But uh, at other times in our history, we've taken much more um, uh, large forays into the extremes, you know, mm. in that era between when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated and the turn of the, uh, the beginning of the 20th century, where you had laissez-faire capitalism, you ended up seeing, you know, a, a few corporations and individuals starting to take control of the Senate and the presidency and guiding things. And, they, you know, it ultimately led to a difficult uh, economic catastrophe. And on the other direction, you ended up having times where in the, during the Great Depression, the New Deal era, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you know, tried to start experimenting with sort of social democratic things that are not widely popular in most regions of the country in the United States, like price controls and, and even guiding and controlling the industrial economy. Um, that ended up being embraced to fight and win World War II, to have that kind of government mobilization to protect, you know, the common good and the people, but was soundly and immediately rejected uh, in peacetime. We saw that again in World War One another time. So you can see this sort of um, this sort of parameters where when things start getting uh, too far in one direction or the other, there's an enormous swing back overall uh, in the country to try to push things back towards the middle. Do you see the politics of the last eighteen months as part of that swing? I see it as a indication of crisis. I mean, the book was written. I was writing this book before you know Donald Trump. Uh, had declared his candidacy and before the primaries were even getting underway. Back in the easier days. Um, what it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The book came out uh, in March, and it, you know I was writing it in sort of 2015. But the book was warning of crisis, that if we go too far down one path, and in this case, the sort of uh, laissez-faire, the idea that less taxes and less government, less regulations have to mean more individual freedom. I mean, that's true if you're living in a in a sort of despotic, centrally controlled state. But as you move further and further, uh, you know, towards a free market economy, that kind of stuff can start creating the pathologies of oligarchy. Hmm. And the book was warning that that was starting to happen, and that's a destabilizing force. And indeed, I see the past 18 months as being an indication that the crisis has played out. Consider this in that individualism, you know, communitarianism spectrum, of all the Republican candidates for president, and there were 17 of them, hmm. only Donald Trump was not playing from that playbook of, of if we had less government, we have to have more individual freedom. He was promising to his followers government intervention on their behalf, you know, for uh, infrastructure, to bring back American jobs. There weren't discussion of, 
you know, tax cuts and reduction in, the, in, um, in services and programs. The discussion was all about how you could trust the, the government in his form, in his person, to solve some of these problems that weren't being solved. In a way, it's a much more communitarian argument than we've heard from a Republican nominee. And guess what? He totally routed <laughs> the entire field of some of the, you know, most, right. uh, you know, powerful and established Republican figures, you know, Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Scott Walker, you know, he blew them all away. And on the Democratic side, you had, you know, the 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 the, the uh, senator, former secretary of state and uh, first lady of a previous president um, who was having a very competitive Democratic primary against somebody who was an avowed social Democrat. <laughs> and that's even more down the communitarian scale than you expect. You know, so these things, it, it's a shakeup and an indication uh, that you know, we, we reached unstable areas. And indeed, you know, it, it, we're in a situation where people are beginning to worry about whether liberal democracy and all of those safeguards are now in crisis. But and it sounds like this has been the struggle since this, this was the purpose of this of the democracy, the, the test of democracy. It is. I mean, you, you look at the Constitution, you look at the prologue as to what the purpose of the country and the document it is. It speaks about, you know, promoting you know, the freedom and prosperity of the people, you know, in perpetuity, you know, going forward for many generations. And that's a powerful and important idea. And, I, you know, I was considering, you know, what is it that are the ideas that hold us together? You know, what's the American the American way that, broadly speaking, all the regional cultures, um, you know, would agree upon, even though they'd have very different answers how to do it. And it boils down to something like this. You know, um, Americans are kind of distinctive in that we believe the best way to have a, you know, a free society and to do things is to have, you know, this this merit-based competition between individuals and their, you know, ideas and institutions and products and whatnot, that if you had this, this free uh, exchange and may the best person win, then uh, that's going to create a free and dynamic society, which is very true and has in many respects done that. Mm. But here's the catch to it all. There's a counterintuitive to it, right? Because, you know, if in theory, you know, everybody just went out there as atomized individuals, uh, you know, on, a, on, a, on an empty playing field, over generations, what happens? You know, the you know, wealth tends to accrue and retain in families and in, and in entities. And within a few generations, a few people are going to start at birth not on an even playing field. Right. They're way ahead of everybody else. And other people will be locked out of any possibility from birth through no fault of their own. So if that plays out, what you end up with, you know, if you play at 10 generations, is an aristocracy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, inherited privilege that doesn't have anything to do with you or your merit, your merit-based struggle or anything. Uh, had you start, you know, with a trillion dollars and a mansion, and the people down the street, you don't have a hope of anything. So there needs to be a countervailing mechanism, and there always has been in liberal democracies. The counterintuitive is to have everybody have a chance, you know, universally of exercising their, you know, their talents and uh, and 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 fighting a fair fight in that in that. American struggle we have, you have to have investments in the institutions that ensure that that playing field remains free and fair over time. You need to have, you know, the investments in the schools and the highways and libraries mm. and hospitals and all of those things, you know, in, in today's era in, you know, colleges and uh, in financial aid and all those things that make it possible to keep the playing field genuinely fair that you don't end up with those wide gulfs and disparities that in effect mean that you no longer have 
that free, you know, uh, American, uh, you know, struggle of ideas that the system ends up being rigged over time just by its own logic. Mm. So that's where the balance lies. And so the answer, I think, into in, in balancing those things has to do with, you know, considering these things in terms of fairness. How do you preserve the fairness of that uh, of our society so that everybody has you know, a shot at, their, at seeing and realizing their potential and exercising freedom, and that that is a good metric for figuring out, you know, your public policy choices as you go out and look at them, whatever they may be. Right. And we've done that in the past. You know, there's been an equilibrium in the past that was bipartisan and had broad regional consensus, you know, throughout the, uh, you know, the, the, the second half, well, the sort of middle years of the 20th century. But um, that consensus has since been lost, and I think part of it is because that keeping your eye on that Fairness as your metric, I think, uh, fell by the wayside. And the book goes into a great deal more detail, but at a sort of orbital view, that's kind of the big picture idea uh, that I that I drive towards. That's right. I, I totally agree. And and I and, and especially take up the spirit if you can do it while being able to invoke both sides of the argument, even the whole the common good and the individual rights, because you see both sides of the argument. Boy, we need we do. It's leadership that we need. Uh, Colin Woodard's his name, and uh, wonderful, wonderful resources. Uh, his book, American Character, A History of Epic Struggle Between Individual Liberty and Common Good. Another great book is American Nations, A History of the Eleven Rival Regional Cultures of North America. We need to know our history, folks, if we want to create a future worth having. And uh, this is a great place to start. We'll take a break, come back, giving you more hope about life and liberty. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. You know, um, just like life, it seems crazy, doesn't it? A little chaotic for many of us. But uh, there are some constants, and one of the things I wanted to talk about in this corner is, uh, is see if we can't help you see that there are a few things that are going on that are predictable, that are a lot uh, easier once easier to uh, live your life once you understand a few basic rules. So here are four rules to make your life more predictable, especially in the relationship area. Uh, the first rule would be remember that your hardest relationships are your greatest teachers. Nothing is harder for us in life than to interact with other human beings. Nothing tests our own resolve more than other people. So uh, if we could start to see that our relationships are nothing more than just another opportunity to live our values, to, uh, to, to grow, to develop... Instead of just always assuming or, or hoping, I guess, really, that we're going to be able to, to derive, uh, you know, what we're looking for out of the relationship, like if what you want is a, is a really uh, awesome deal on something um, and you're trying to negotiate it with another human being and that person just makes it really, really difficult, what would happen if you could see that moment as an opportunity to learn? as a fact that this this person is not just a barrier in your life, but actually, but instead kind of a doorway to creating um, more growth, more development to make it so the next time you're going to have a better chance of making something happen. So see your relationships as your greatest spiritual practice and see your relationships as a teacher. Another highly predictable theme, thing that I think we could all do is assume that bad behavior is simply uh, or is generally unintentional, unaware, 
or unskilled people. Uh, most bad behavior are not created by a bunch of evil spawn of darkness. They're not just all out to get you. They're not all trying to figure out ways to make your life more miserable. Most of the time, it's just unintended. People were unaware or they didn't know what they were doing. No, 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 Matt, Matt, they are, they're totally intentional. But uh, it's a different paradigm. The minute you think it's unintentional and they're unaware, then you can actually do more about it than, than just give up or fight or complain. You can actually just accept what's going on. They didn't know you were standing there when they butted in line or they were unaware or they were unskilled. Maybe they don't know how lines work. But um, the benefit of it is whether, by the way, it's true or not, it can make you feel different. When you assume somebody didn't didn't uh, do something because of ill will, then you don't have to immediately jump to the negative conclusions that they're out to get you. You don't have to be as afraid. You don't have to be as defensive. And so in reality, the ability that you have to shift your paradigm to assume that your husband um, you know, not wanting to talk. It, don't assume it's that he doesn't like you or doesn't care about you. Maybe it's just he doesn't know how, or he wasn't aware that how important it was to you. Well, no, I've told him twenty times. Yeah, and he still may not be aware, or it's unintended. He doesn't know that it's that painful for you. His intention is just to actually avoid a fight, not to hurt you. Make sense? And there's so much power in starting to see your, the, the people that are around you um, uh, not as, as so harmful. Napoleon had a quote that said, Never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by incompetence. We don't have to attribute somebody's lack of competence to, to maliciousness because the minute you do, now you're dealing with somebody that's, that's really dangerous, Right. Another rule that we, can, that we can remember as we interact with other people in our lives is that your emotions are always about you. Emotions are there, then they're there to protect us, and they're there to help manage how we act, to help us magnify our opportunities, minimize our pains. And when we are angry at somebody uh, for something that they've done, remember that that anger is always, uh, is always about you. It's not about what they did. It's about you. It's about how you're interpreting it. It's about how it's impacting you. The times I am most angry or frustrated with my kids, it's about me. Well, no, Matt, it's because they're downplaying Fortnite and they should be going to bed. Um, No, that's probably not it. Part of it might be why am I not managing my family better? Why am I not more involved? Why am I not – why did I make the decision to buy games that I didn't feel I should buy? It's emotion is about you, and it's important because that you recognize that because the minute you sense it's about you, then you can actually do something about it. If I keep thinking that my emotion is about my everyone else that's around me that's causing my emotion, then I'm probably giving up too much pain and power over what I feel, over what I think, over what I do. Don't give up your power. Own your emotions. Allow yourself to feel what you're feeling. Let the emotion teach you where you need to dedicate more time and attention to something. And instead of just blaming others for feeling what you feel, why don't you just own your emotions and, and, uh, and start to see if you can't change them. And last but not least, there's an interesting uh, other lesson that's feeling lucky is just as good as being lucky. Uh, 
You don't need to be lucky to feel good about your life. Just the mere fact that you feel like you're lucky, that's enough. You, I mean, the the crazy benefit of thinking that you've got some uh, some you know streak of luck going is actually going to help you be happier, feel younger, heal faster. Feeling like you're lucky lucky makes your approach to certain tax di- tasks different, gives you more confidence, more effectiveness. So start telling yourself how lucky you are and blessed you are. In fact, maybe more importantly, start counting your blessings every single day, and amazingly, you'll actually feel more blessed. Feeling lucky is just as good as being lucky. A little, uh, little insight for you, folks. It's just, you know, it's just my advice. Doesn't mean it's right. It's just, just an opinion. We'll continue the journey up next. We're going to be talking about how raising, uh, how to raise happily uh, and productive, happy and productive kids in this difficult time. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Well, who doesn't want to raise a a healthier, happier, more productive uh, child? Our guest, um, actually Dr. Donna Matthews, has worked with uh, children, families, and schools since 1990. She has published dozens of articles and book chapters, including Beyond Intelligence, Secrets for Raising Happily Productive Kids. And a few months back, Dr. Matthews joined our show to help us understand different types of families and some basic rules we can use to build family happiness. I began the interview by pointing out that families come in many different forms and asked why it is important to have hope that we can make happy families in any situation. One of the, the uh, concepts there, it's a, uh, a misconception that a lot of people have that people of the past were raised in happy families with a mom and a dad who loved each other and loved the children. That has always been more the exception than the rule. So to begin with that traditional notion of family is a bit, um, you know, sort of Vaseline on the lens, yeah. uh, a rosier picture than reality ever provided for people. It's a myth That's to a degree. Different. And yet, so it's always been, families have always had their issues. And even if you were raised in yes. a nice little nuclear family, you may have had an alcoholic parent, or you exactly. may have had a father that traveled a lot, and yes. there was, whatever, there was always issues. Precisely. And certainly family composition, like who the parents are, you know, whether there's one parent or three or, you know, whatever the, the family composition is, is a lot less important to children's long-term development than, than the parenting approaches that whatever parents are in residence are taking with their hmm. kids. So kindness, boundary setting, uh, providing meaningful learning opportunities are way more important than do you have a a mom and dad who love each other and love you. Yeah, that's great. And that's really that's kind of hopeful, right? Because it's more about you can make it as great as you can make it. And one of the keys are the principles, not always, you know, the makeup. Precisely. And so families who are approaching the holidays or, or any other time as newly disrupted. So when the family composition changes, there certainly is a disruption period that can be very difficult for the kids and for the parent or parents. So, so paying attention to that fact of there being a disruption period is important, but understanding that beyond that, that most kids who grow up in families of divorce do just as well as most kids who grow up in other kinds of families. Mm. 
You know, that's, so. it's true. It's, that's so helpful to feel because I, I was raised in a divorced family. Yeah. And I turned out okay. It, but, <laughs> exactly, me too. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's interesting because we—I always felt like I was different or sh- yeah. strange, and it is because yeah. you go to your—you go to everyone else's homes and you think, oh man, yeah. they must be happier. But in reality, that's not always the case. Yeah, I mean, in fact, it's interesting that that uh, I mean, what the research shows is that kids who feel loved and supported through that divorce process, and whose parents are able to somehow to negotiate that custody of the kids amicably, you know, with friendship and respect, those kids can actually become more competent and more capable than kids who don't experience hmm. that the, the challenge that's provided by living with divorced parents. What, so, what makes them more, what would give them an advantage to maybe get more capable, more competent? Well, kids who see one or, or even better, both of their parents coping in their new situation, making good lives for themselves, actually develop some resiliencies. They learn a whole lot about coping with changes and setbacks in their own lives. Yeah. So, so it can become a, a resiliency factor for kids. Now, of course, that doesn't always happen. So how you, how you parent through divorce matters a lot. That's and, great. You know, I put together some some rules, like yeah. ideas for parents. Teach um, us some of these, because these these are the rules, and and I would assume that the rules will work also uh, whether you're co-parenting in divorce situation or trying to blend a family, maybe even or yeah, which is its own yeah. challenges, obviously. Yeah. yeah, teach us. Yep. So I mean, sort of the the first principle when you're dealing with divorce is to to be kind to yourself. Understand that disruption is inevitable. If you can accept that, rather than trying to just be normal, just accept. Just like when somebody dies or somebody is very ill, just accepting it can help you as the parent and also your kids get through it more successfully. If you don't accept it, I guess you're going to fight it. Exactly. And you put a lot of energy into that instead of into taking care of yourself and taking care of your children. Yeah. So, so, um, so finding a way to be okay with this disruptive period, and that's that's easier said than done. No, obviously. yeah. Well, what are some other things we could be doing and looking out for? Okay, and I think that that rule number one, following that, is to, you know, and this is important for every parent in every situation, but it's more true for parents who who are going through some kind of a family turmoil situation. Be as available as you can to your kids. Be available as possible to listen, like and really listen, to be present to them, to be quiet, to be calm, to give them a space in which they feel like they can process their own stuff. Mm. So, and then to provide them whatever support you can through that. Because kids, quite naturally, when their their parents are disrupting their own lives, the parents are disrupting the parents' lives, well, the kids obviously have huge repercussions, and children can be expected to be angry. I mean, not all of them get angry. Some of them get sad. Yeah, but they should have negative emotion. Yeah. That should be the norm. I mean, that sad, angry. Exactly. You that. And and it's okay for your kids to be really mad at you Mm -hmm. or 
sending away your dad, their dad or their mom. Yeah, and not necessarily understand, right? Because no, they can't. Yeah, they they're can't. young and they're developmentally at a different stage. So exactly. Yeah. Well, and that sort of leads me to one of the other principles that's important, and that is not to use your kids as friends. They can't understand. Don't try to talk to them about your relationship with your ex-spouse in anything other than sort of broad terms. Make sure that you're communicating as honestly as you can at the level that they can process in a healthy way. So parents who talk to their kids about their sex lives and problems with that, that's really not okay. Yeah, out of boundaries. <laughs> helpful. Yeah. That's really not good. Oh, I, ha- I hear this know. all the time, though, where they, yeah. oh, yeah, well, you, so my your father is with his girlfriend now. Exactly. And, exactly. Yeah. Don't go there. It's tempting, but don't go there. Don't try to justify, you know, your own negative emotions by whatever your ex-spouse is doing that you find horrendous to your kids. I mean, use your friends, okay, which is another important principle here is, Put a lot of emphasis and time into creating for yourself as the parent a network of social support. Find adults with whom you can talk and process all of your anger and disappointment and fears and all of those negative emotions. Your kids are not the people to Mm. do that with, but you do need people to do that with. So it can be a professional, it can be a good friend, it can be a family member, but somebody who can be there for you so you're not tempted to use your kids in that way. That was uh, Dr. Donna Matthews, from, um, who's a counselor, a therapist, and also uh, a writer. She has been working with children, families, and schools since 1990, has published dozens of articles and book chapters. And what, by the way, what great insight. As a child uh, from divorced parents, I, I saw a lot of amazing stuff that came from my in-laws and or my my grandparents on both sides of of this divorce my uh nobody i don't think was was ever more gracious to my father than my mother's mother she was so loving and positive and caring about him i have no idea if she ever said anything behind uh his back but i know in front of me she always talked very positively about him and that actually gave me some great insight about my own dad and by the way my grandmother my mother's mother it was it was just powerful to have positive people around me remember kids are very resilient and uh they're they're willing to give everybody the benefit of the doubt if we could just get all of the adults to be as healthy that would be that would be even um more powerful so there's, it's life, folks. Change happens. Things are hard, and uh, we can make it through it together as a family. We will continue uh, airing more of Donna Matthews' advice as we go throughout next hour. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Happy Tuesday to you. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Hope you're having a great day today. Uh, we've got so much to cover. We're going to be talking about the physics of a free throw. 
because it is, uh, you know, Final Four time. We're in the Final Four, and boy, a lot of these games were won by a free throw or uh, two. And so today you will learn the official algorithm for the perfect free throw. Maybe. Depending, by the way, on your height, uh, not necessarily your weight, but where you're standing, how you stand, your length of your arms. But there really is a science to it. For example, are you supposed to aim for the center of the hoop or the back of the hoop Hmm. or the front of the hoop? We'll be talking with the experts that have been researching the subject for all of you that have big free throws coming up in your life. Like, how sad is that when you see somebody have a chance to win $1,000 at a basketball game and, whoa, they just brick it? Are we talking literally or metaphorically? No, literally. Okay. Yeah, not metaphorically. How many of us are going to find ourselves in that position where we are the one selected out of thousands? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay. A lot of us. But (laughs) if that does happen, you'll be prepared. And when you're teaching your kids, you'll want to know exactly where we should be aiming. What should the apex of your arc hmm. be? Should it be higher than the backboard, or top is... of the backboard, middle of the backboard? Where should it be? Do we want a straight shot, like a frozen kind of clothesline shot, kind of like Shaquille O'Neal? <laughs> or would we rather have a nice, gentle arc? And then do we actually reach into the cookie jar with our hand? That would be... <laughs> That would be interesting to ask, like uh, someone like like a Shaquille O'Neal, where their hand is so big, yeah, and it looks like they're holding an orange, yeah. How does that affect? By the way, shooting oranges much harder. Yeah, you'd think it'd be easier because if you remember, he kind of went with the they call it the granny shot, the underhand. Yeah, he tried that for a while. He just they kept trying to adjust it because he could not make a free throw. Right. Well, and it's. I mean, it's when you when you hear the equation, it's pretty crazy, and it all is about kind of the flow and the motion of your body. And you think about just the synapses firing from his brain to like his hand. That's a long, long journey, <laughs> right? It's got to go right. all the way down his brain, down but, his spinal cord, to his arm, down those long arms. Is there an ideal like size of hand Probably. that makes this work? Probably. Because his being so big, he can't really yeah. like, maybe get a spin like someone else could And on by the, ball. the way, how much spin do you want on the ball? Right. A lot of people put way too much spin, and mm. you want just the right amount of spin because that actually deadens the ball when it hits the rim. It just kind of, bonk, and then just dies. It's a science, folks, and we'll be talking about the physics of a free throw up next. But first, let's get to the rest of the headlines with our other scientist, Terry South. What's going on, Terry? President Trump on Monday ordered the expulsion of 60 Russian officials as well as the closure of the Seattle consulate in response to the poisoning of a former Russian spy and his daughter who were living in Britain. The Washington Post reports that Seattle consulate apparently was a a hive of espionage in the upper northwest of the country. The espionage hive. I saw a story about that. But I wonder, do they sit there, so is that why they closed that one, or was it just because which consulate is the least busy? Yeah, they've heard just through a dart, because there's probably five or six. They shut one down in San Francisco before. I'm not sure if that yeah. reopened. but huh. So the officials had a, we have a week to leave the U.S. At least 10 European countries have also banned together to expel Russian diplomats in a coordinated response. 
Russia has warned it will retaliate in kind. The Russian embassy in the U.S. has claimed on Twitter that the accusations against Moscow are another large-scale anti-Russian campaign and said that it is of the utmost importance to calmly and professionally get to the bottom of the tragedy and come up with joint steps to prevent such incidents from ever happening again like, I don't know, poisoning former Russian spies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah probably I'll be doing that. The Russian embassy in, uh, in D.C. tweeted... Uh, U.S. administration ordered the closure of Russian consulate in Seattle. Uh, what U.S. consulate general would should we close in Russia? As it's up to you to decide. Then it lists three choices, and so far the consulate in Saint Petersburg has the lead with like forty-seven percent of the vote. Oh boy, <laughs> that's kind of just yeah, neener neener. Yeah, they're like this is trivial. We'll just pick one. Doesn't we're turning matter. it into a game. Six packages containing explosive components were sent to military and intelligence sites in Washington, D.C. on Monday, authorities said. The packages were all sent by mail, with the first reported at the National Defense University before similar parcels turned up at the CIA's mailing sorting facility, a White House mail sorting facility, a U.S. naval facility, and other military sites, according to NBC News. The FBI is examining the packages to determine whether they were sent by the same person, but federal officials have said they don't believe it had anything to do with the Austin bomber. They said that he, they're not sure if he's sent any more. They're thinking okay, he didn't. Good. They're not saying this has any connection to that. One official cited by NBC News said rambling letters were included with some of the packages, but no further details were given on the content. Is a rambling letter meaning no punctuation? Uh, let's ask Jeff. He's, he's really good at these. Right. Jeff, uh, is a rambling letter meaning no punctuation? Um, well, let me just give you a long, rambling answer to answer that question. That's the answer we were looking for. Okay. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks. He says yes. Okay. Mark Zuckerberg has rejected an invite from the British Parliament to appear before lawmakers to answer questions over the data handling scandal that has engulfed Facebook and sent its share prices plummeting. The billionaire was summoned to appear before the committee to explain the data harvesting by Cambridge Analytica, but a letter to members of Parliament Tuesday delivered... The news that Zuckerberg himself won't be attending the letter from Facebook, UK's head of public policy, told lawmakers that Zuckerberg has requested that one of his deputies appear before the committee in his place. Yeah. Interesting because he's been summoned by Congress. Yeah. Along with the heads of Twitter and Google, and we'll see how that works. Well, but see, that's what you do, right? When you're at that point, you're like, I'm just going to send my people. Yeah, but they did that before when they called him in after the election. They sent the lawyers, and then all the criticism followed because at the same time, he was on a earnings call. With right. shareholders. Right. So he'll go talk to the shareholders, but yeah. he won't talk to the government. Well, and here's the other problem, though, is if you want answers, he probably isn't the guy. That's my thought, is you want you want the if, if you either want a, the lawyer or yeah. – they're, actually, they're talking about sending the, the technical yeah, the experts, CTO, yeah. the CTO, to go in and discuss, because he knows all the technology. Yeah, that's what – wouldn't that – but unless you, unless you want to fillet somebody – then you just bring him to fillet him. Because on, honestly, Zuckerberg may have, or may not, depending on the movie you watched, uh, <laughs> created this in his dorm room. Yeah. But the days of him sitting and coding, I don't know if he's really no. involved no. as, as I'm sure not. others are. I mean, really, there's a lot of details about Facebook yeah. that Zuckerberg doesn't even know. And, unless he's sitting in that office with the well-lit and nice plants in the background, yeah. a nice neutral tone to the room. It doesn't seem like he can talk yeah. to the public much. Yeah, so good point. Uh, finally, Canadians have a reputation for being unfailingly nice. That's right. While the French don't. Nice. No, they and, seem mean. And a waiter, uh, Guillaume Ray, says, 
This clash of cultures cost him his job. Oh, boy. Ray was fired from his job in Van- a Vancouver restaurant for being, quote, aggressive, rude, and disrespectful. Oh, boy. The French waiter is not denying that he can be short with people, but he doesn't see the problem with his behavior and has filed a complaint with the British British Columbia's Humans, right, Human Right Tribunal. Ray said French people tend to be more direct and expressive, and his firing shows clear discrimination against my culture. Mm. Ray and the restaurant both agree he was good at his job, bad attitude notwithstanding, and the tribunal has agreed to let Ray explain what it is about French heritage, his French heritage that would result in behavior that people misinterpret as a violation of workplace standards of acceptable conduct. Yes. So he's rude, but he's saying be- being fired because he was rude is discrimination because he's French. Right. What do you think? It's not. It's not rude. It's culturally appropriate. Yeah. And but I see. I grew up on Pepe Le Pew, mm. and he had some things today. He would have been so swept up in the Me Too mo- oh, big movement. Time. I was watching it the other day with my kid. He Pepe was, was just totally confused. Yeah, and he you could not stop that little skunk. Yeah, he's determined. Plus, he would impersonate mm-hmm. cats. He was devious. Yeah. But I don't know if that's really French culture or if that's just Pepe. Not sure. This guy says the French are rude, but that's cultural. Yeah. And if you discriminate against me, you should pay. And they're like, you were mean to people at a restaurant, dude. You're fired. Yeah, I don't know that we can, like, because our New Yorkers just mean and that's a cultural thing or they just direct. They're expressive and direct. See, so it's not, it's, it can't, you can't plead culture. Mm. Especially if you're living in a culture that doesn't take that. <laughs> the Canadians. The Canadians. Ah, oh, Pepe Le Pew. He's such a good man. Uh, okay, we're going to continue the journey up next, folks. Get ready and buckle up. We're going to be talking about the physics of a free throw. Then you can talk around the water cooler about everything you know about free throws. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, shoot a better free throw. Well, two seconds left on the clock with the game on the line, and all you need is one free throw to win the national championship in basketball. Sounds like the scenario I would create in my driveway, right? But for two teams this year, it could be reality. Our next guest, Larry Silverberg, is a professor of applied and theoretical dynamics at North Carolina State, and today he's going to show us how to shoot uh, or talk about showing or talk about a, how to shoot a free throw to win the game. Uh, so grateful to have you here, Larry. Thanks for your time. Hey, it's a really good, a pleasure for me to be here. Now, what on earth would make you think? Okay, I'm going to re- do a research study on the math behind the perfect uh, throw, free throw, or the science behind the perfect free throw? Well, that's a good question. Uh, sometimes I, I wonder that one myself. I, <laughs> as a dynamicist, I usually study more basic questions, things about underlying laws of physics and, at the macro level and some of the paradoxes that we have in science and how modern scientists reduce it. But I do love the game of basketball, and so spending a little time Studying basketball has uh, been something over the last 20 years that I've, 
I've loved to do. That's cool. Now, Larry, did you have you seen the uh, robot? Somebody put together a robot that's a free throw shooting robot. But after reading your article, I've decided uh, maybe that's not as hard as it sounds because your articles put it just pretty much into basic science. Well, you know, that's yeah, that robot can basically shoot a free throw about 100 percent of the time. So wow. robots um, scientifically can do it. We we have a kind of um, there is something called a best shot, um, a best trajectory. But the robot is a little bit different. His muscles, his articulated motion um, is very, very different than a human. So a human will shoot the shot. Each human will shoot the shot in a different way to get the best launch conditions, but there is one perfect trajectory of a, of a basketball. Okay, interesting. Walk us through it, and what do we need? So, so, so what constitutes the perfect free throw, uh, really, and what, is, uh, what does the trajectory need to be? And I guess it depends on our height, but what have you learned? Well, I'll, I'll back up a little bit and tell you that about 20 years ago, we basically created computer simulations so that we could take essentially millions of shots. So when I'm out on the court and I take a shot, it takes me a while to get to take a lot of shots. But on the computer, you can take millions of them. That means you can learn a lot quicker hmm. what the best shots are. Most, of, um, most people kind of know what the best shots are, putting a nice high arc on the ball, putting some nice backspin on the ball. There were In, in the free throw, there were two things that we discovered that were that people, some people knew, some people did not know. And one of them was um, aim toward the back uh, of the hoop. The ball should go in. Um, usually the best ball will go in, and the back of the ball will be about two inches from the back of the rim. So you want to aim toward the back of the rim. And there was some confusion about that. A lot of people thought that it depended on whether you're a short player or a tall player. But mm. in both cases, you want to aim toward the back of the rim. Um, so that was one of the things. The, the other thing had to do with a, a little bit of a controversy over whether you should release the ball low or high. And uh, some people thought that you, it's okay to release low. Some people thought it, you should release high. And it turns out that it's definitely advantageous to release high. So if you're not yet already skilled in the free throw and you're learning from, from the beginning and you don't have a habits that you have to break, you're now creating new habits, releasing high is the second thing that's always uh, advantageous. Interesting. Aim to the back of the rim. And you, one of the things I read in your article was the fact that if you – the best shooters tend if, – if they make a mistake, they tend to have a, a – you know, have it bounce off the back of the rim. Is that right? Well, well it, it, you, if you're off a little bit, and of course every shot is a little bit off – um, the back of the rim is a little more forgiving than the front of the rim, and that's actually why you aim toward the back of the rim. So if it happens to hit the back of the rim, that's not as bad as if it hits the front of the rim. And hmm. so that would be kind of the intuitive reason why it works out to be the best. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, what else What else uh, shocks you? Uh, the release, you're saying release high. Now, I just remember as a kid, I always had to release really low, right, because I'm trying to get as much oomph as I could. Um, but... Uh, what about the the backspin? I know the backspin um, is important as well. Well, well, as far as well, even in, as far as releasing low and releasing high, there's the underhand shot. So people talk about the underhand shot. Why we have we abandoned today the underhand shot from 50 years ago? And when you're a child and you don't have enough strength, you will shoot an underhand shot, and you're releasing really low when you do an underhand shot. So some people will say, well, maybe what we should do is bring back the underhand shot. And so when we studied that, we found that actually 
there's an interesting, there are two things that you want to do when you're shooting the ball. One of them is the best trajectory. That's after it, 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 the instant it leaves your fingertips. We're talking about the best trajectory. But then there's how you even get to that best trajectory. It's the motion of your body to get to the best trajectory. And there, um, what the underhand shot has is one consistent but one nice body motion whereas the body motion of an overhead shot is more complicated so what happens is the underhand shot is easier to perfect consistently you can be consistent much more accurate with it because the body motion is smooth and it's one body motion whereas the overhead is a little more difficult you have to do a lot more practice Mm. to be consistent at it so even though the overhead shot releasing high is better, it doesn't mean that's easier to achieve. Um, So you kind of have this um, trade-off between how much practice you want to put in versus what is the best shot. So my advice always to to coaches is if you have a player and he or she is really not good at the free throw, you might want to break those habits. You might want that person to try the underhand shot if they're interested in doing it. Um, uh, Getting to your second question about uh, backspin, um, about three revolutions per second is about the best. So uh, it takes a second for the ball to get to the to the hoop. So you would actually see the ball rotate three times before mm. it goes into the basket, and that turns out to be the best. It's natural. Anything more than that is a kind of unnatural in your body when you're trying to when you're throwing the ball, shooting the ball. So um, that ten- that tends to be about the right right amount of backspin. And what that does is it deadens the ball so that when it bounces off the rim or the or the backboard, it won't bounce as much. Interesting. And so it keeps the ball closer to the basket. Yeah. Is um, so, so there's a lot of things going on here. Obviously, the motion of your body. Have you ever seen those people that kind of, they do their motion and then once they get the ball kind of up and high, they, they almost stop their motion and then they just flip their wrist? Does, is, is a one fluid motion you're saying would be better than two motions? Well, it's interesting. You, different coaches have all sorts of ideas on how to coach it, and I'm, and, and I'm not a coach. But I will tell you this. The, every single person is different. So what happens is uh, each person, um, you know, a body, we could go back to the robot. You know, a body ha- is, an, is a, a system of articulated joints and members and some, body, some people have very strong upper body. Some people have stronger lower body. So how you coordinate between the different motions from the legs up to the hands and the arms and, the, and your wrists uh, is going to vary from player to player. So uh, each person is going to find their unique way of doing it, and each unique way of doing it is different. Um, the, the coordination of everything are, kinda, are sometimes called the gates. So um, depending on the motion that you're doing, there's going to be some kind of sequencing. Huh. Is there, I mean, I'm assuming people are just intuitive. This is an intuitive kind of a tacit skill. You just got to learn it by feel, by root, by doing it regularly, doing it a lot. Because, um, but there's another point you bring up is is the angle. And um, because there needs to be some, the, with this arc, there needs to be some angle. Where should how should the arc look short of us having a protractor what what are we supposed to do to know where the top of the ball should be at the peak of its arc versus um you know just simply just aiming for the rim yeah so you're really talking about uh how do you get your cues what's your feedback 
Okay? Yeah. So you really don't want to think about all of these launch conditions. So in math, um, we'll say as soon as the ball leaves your fingertips, there's, all these conditions have to be perfect. But that would drive you crazy if you had to think about that. You, and you don't want to. And it's, not, it's not even helpful. It's more helpful to have these cues, to have some feedback. And so what you really want to do is you want to see the ball's trajectory have a good amount of arc. Maybe the top of the ball, when it's flying through the air, is somewhere near the top of the basket. You don't want to put too much arc on there. You don't want to overdo it, and you don't want it to be flat. But if you're in the vicinity of, about, of the top of the ball being near the top of the basket, you're doing pretty good. That's None great. of these really have to be perfect to be even a 80 or 90% free throw shooter. Uh, to be a really good free throw shooter, you just want to do all of them about right, but not necessarily perfect. So good amount of arc, yeah. putting about three revolutions per second of, of backspin, aiming toward the back of the hoop. Uh, if, you can, if you happen to release high, that's good. All of those together give you really just good habits. Did you? Um, so when you watch the game now, do you watch the free throw shooter and in your head think, oh, yeah, horrible. He's, he's ruining it. He's, he's violating every rule. Has it ruined the game for you or has it made it more fun, Larry? Uh, I might think about it a little bit, but actually I get caught up in the game like most everybody yeah. else. Um, you know, Villanova, for example, is the best free-throating team right now of the of the four in the in the in the quarterfinals. Um, they're about about a 77% free-throw shooting team. Um, but interestingly enough, the others are not as good as Villanova. So, in our top four, for example, we don't have necessarily the top free-throw shooting team. So, free-throw shooting is very important. It can decide a game here and there, but you don't necessarily have the top free throw shooting teams making it all the way. There's a lot of other, a lot of other factors that are much, much more important. But of course, when you watch a team and they, and they miss it at the free throw line, it's pretty discouraging. Oh, I bet. Uh, we're speaking again with Dr. Larry Silverberg. Larry's a professor of theoretical and applied dynamics at North Carolina State University and a lead researcher behind the article, The Anatomy of the Free Throw, as well as many, many other research uh, projects and, and um, programs there. What, um, what would you say then is the most common mistake that people are making as far as the physics goes of the free throw? Um, the most common mistake in the free throw probably is where you aim toward. Um, probably um, some people just don't aim toward the back of the rim, and that, that actually reduces their the chances of success quite a bit. Well, it's interesting, too. A ball can hang on the rim, If it, I guess, with the spin you were talking about, and hit, hitting the back of the rim would... It just seemed well. Like, you don't want it to hit the back. No, no, no. But aiming toward the back. Yeah, but if it if you overshot it, you also have the backboard to at least give you another shot or two yeah. at the rim. Um, yeah. Did you? So, do you think just uh, science wise, if we if we took a person, I mean, I guess there's the whole psychology of the free throw as well. There's there's the the person's ability to be self aware enough of their own body to to know what's going on and to know how they're doing it. But do you think if you just sat someone in a room with your, uh, with your team, would, do you think you could improve their shooting? Um, I or think just statistically, so, but I, I, yeah. But I, I think probably because of um, – so applying science to something is, is just a, a healthy way to be in a lot of things, not just in sports. And so – um, sometimes it isn't good to always personalize everything, so, you know, and one side has one idea and another side has another idea and then everybody takes their side. Sometimes it's good to be scientific and, um, 
and 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 then just be open to learning what the best ways are to doing something. So I think kind of a, and we're seeing this more and more in sports. It'd be nice also in society at large if we see this a little bit more. But um, I think just adopting a little more analytical approach to things uh, allows you to uh, improve much more rapidly and um, ultimately find a better way. Yeah. Because a lot of this, I guess, yeah, it would just be the data. The data speaks a lot. and But, you know, then comes the that weird, odd player that just shoots with such a weird gait or with such a weird – in such a yeah. weird way, but he makes it work. That's right because of the individual of the player. Yeah. So, but, and, and there are coaching implications to that because – um, I was alluding to this earlier, but some coaches will really stress the mechanics in very in great detail, uh, and say that one player has one way of doing it. But because uh, people have uh, relative strengths of and and conditioning, I mean, it starts from the time you're a baby when you basically uh, move your hands and kick your feet, and you start going from simple motions to complex motions, and ultimately you become coordinated in some way. This is something that's being learned throughout your entire life. And so going and completely trying to change that is a very difficult thing to do, and, each, and it shouldn't be because everybody is different. So in coaching, we have coaches who teach the free throw who allow for that individuality, and, um, and those coaches, I think, do much better um, in, in uh, getting the, um, the players to improve their free throw. Yeah, you bet. Um, as we wrap up, Larry, what, what, uh, how does your research impact daily life? How do, you, how do you see this data influencing, you know, the rest of our lives, uh, maybe those that aren't shooting free throws? Well, I think um, my students who uh, sometimes I lure them in and get them involved in this, they have a lot of fun, and they're learning a little bit about the scientific method. So if they're engineering students, they're learning about the scientific method in engineering, um, but in general, uh, more broadly speaking, I think adopting um, uh, a sense of inquiry, inquisitiveness, and learning how to how to do that so you can learn what, what, what the answers are. We generally notice patterns much quicker than we know what's behind the pattern. And so what happens is we notice a pattern and we have an opinion. And we don't know what the limitations of the pattern are. And so we, we get, we all have our ideas and our philosophies, but they all have their limitations. And so I think uh, everything that I do, the people that get, get involved in this, they get to see um, kind of the scientific method, which I think is uh, healthy in a lot of ways. That's good. Great stuff, Larry. Thank you so much. I so agree. There's patterns. There's, uh, I mean, there's probabilities. There's all this other data, but in reality, it's um, so much of it is by feel. And yet, don't discount the science. Don't discount the data. Take it into account. Your body can make adjustments. Dr. Larry Silverberg, thank you for your time. Again, he's a professor of theoretical and applied dynamics at uh, North Carolina State University, and also the lead researcher behind the article, "The Anatomy of the Free Throw." That's one you're going to want to uh, share with your kids, folks. Uh, giving them the insight they need aim for the back of the rim but uh you know three turns on the backspin the perfect shot we'll continue the journey a little coach's corner straight ahead this is the matt townsend show helping you be the good in the world because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach 
Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends. You know, as we were talking about free throws, the whole time I'm thinking, man, it's the... A lot of it's the same theory of your your life, right? Your connection to others, your ability to actually connect and to 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 feel a closeness with another person. Um, it's interesting too how uh, Dr. Silverberg was talking about it's. There's the science behind it. Sometimes we personalize it too much, and you know, there's there's everybody's so different. But there's there's also benefit to knowing what the numbers say, what the science says on the ideal like place to look, the ideal place to the amount of spin. But the same is true in our own lives with our own um with our with ourselves when it comes to our human relationships. One of the things I'm noticing though about uh the athletes, in fact, somebody said this the Toyota robot that's going to um that can shoot 100% free throws. They they want to challenge some of the some of the best players like Steph Curry um to a to a shoot-off contest. You know, part of it's gimmicky, right? But that we know it's part of it's gimmicky because they also wanted Shaquille O'Neal to be uh, part of the competition. And I don't know that Shaquille O'Neal hit many free throws um, for as many as he got to, to shoot because he was hacked so much. But one of the keys, I think, is to know yourself in anything. It's, there's power in that self-awareness to understand your body, to understand you know, are you stronger up top? Are you stronger in your legs? Where where does your strength reside? The truth is is just as real in our in our own social life and our own personal life. What are your strengths? What are you really good at? What time of day, for example, are you most productive? Do you know what your sweet spot is when you really can put out more data, more information? Do you know what uh, what location where you do your best thinking? Can you do your best thinking anywhere? Does it not matter about location? Does there need to be certain lighting? Does there need to be music? What is the best way for you to get the most out of yourself? Uh, do you know uh, how much energy you use or waste or use during mindless activities? Do you know if you're an introvert or an extrovert? Do you know yourself? So just as important as it would be to, to know your body for a free throw, you've got to know yourself when it comes to life. Do you know how you take in information? Do you do it visually? Do you do it through your ears, kinesthetically, through your body? Do you know what happens to you when you're, when you're uh, you know, overly anxious or overly stimulated? Do you get angry? Do you withdraw? Does your heart rate go up? Do you sweat more? Know yourself. Another way to understand, and you see a lot of basketball players do this, is they, they get up and they take a deep kind of deep cleansing breath. Your breath is a powerful way to understand where you are and where your body is at any uh, given stage. If you're breathing, if you're breathing more shallow, I notice it all the time when I'm driving that I'm not taking deep breaths, which is probably why I feel stressed and uh, why I feel more and more anxious. In fact, think about it. If I have a half-hour commute every morning and a half-hour commute every afternoon – I and I'm not breathing well during those times because I'm stressed or if I speak a lot like on the radio show I'm not I, there's always a little stress there so um breathing is not optimal I should let my breathing be my guide as to what's happening to my levels of stress and a lot of the great uh examples and tools we use to manage our anxiety and our stress is our breathing techniques if you get online you can just google 
breathing, uh, deep breathing exercises, go look them up on um, on YouTube and you'll find some awesome, awesome tools to help you manage your breathing. And by the way, whenever you're managing your breathing, you're actually learning to get more and more present. Um, it's a powerful tool to help you actually reconnect into what's going on real time in the moment. Uh, another uh, simple little tool that I think each and every one of us can use is to honor the paces, the pacing of others. A lot of people around us, you'll notice, are a little slower in their thinking, uh, not, not less adequate or less valuable thinking, just slower in how they process. And they may frustrate you like, come on, move it, move it along, move it along, move it along. But there's power in you being able to speed up your pace for those that are faster, slow down your pace, just like a professional athlete that can speed up their game or lower their uh, speed of the game and, and, and do so to basically take advantage of the moment, of the situation. If we could learn to work better with people and simply notice that sometimes what frustrates us with the people around us are their pace. Their pace just isn't there. It's not fast enough for us. And that might actually mitigate or get rid of some of that pain for you. Anyway, just as important, uh, just as, as, as much as it is important um, to be self-aware when it comes to your free throw shooting, it's just as important to do so with your emotional and social life. Just a little coach's corner, giving you the tools you need to uh, be the kind of person you want to be. Healthier, happier, longer relationships. That's the goal of the show. Up next, we'll be talking more about uh, raising happily productive kids. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You know, when life throws you a curveball and uh, maybe your marriage falls apart, uh, it can impact kids. It can impact family. So uh, how do you raise happily productive kids through those difficult times? Uh, Dr. Donna Matthews has worked with children, families, and schools since 1990. She's published dozens of articles and book chapters, including her book, Beyond Intelligence, Secrets for Raising Happily Productive Kids. And uh, a a few uh, weeks ago, we had an interview with Donna, and we wanted to replay part of that interview with you today. I began the interview by talking about how no matter the struggle in life that we're going through, like divorce, for example, you can still raise happy and productive kids. I like how you're framing this. It's that, I mean, although people sometimes when they're in certain circumstances feel that they're all alone, yeah. and that their family is terrible and they're doing a terrible thing to their kids by living with divorce or alcoholism or, you know, any of those other problems. And, and sure, yes, they are problems. But they don't prevent anyone from being a good, effective parent, and they don't prevent anyone from raising happily productive yeah. kids. I love so that you're blowing that myth up because yeah. it's too easy to just believe you've kind of blown it just exactly. simply because you're divorcing. Exactly. You haven't. There's so much you will be able to give your kids, and it's important you you stay positive in that and stay committed to doing what you can do within the circumstances. Yeah, that's great. So one of the one of the interesting um, ideas that's come up recently with some some fascinating to me anyway research is the importance of being grateful that people who actively appreciate what's good in their lives they feel better. 
they're happier, they're more energetic, they're more optimistic, they're more empathetic. It's interesting. People like people who approach life with an attitude of gratitude rather than one of entitlement. So, and, and I find that that contrast, you know, to set those two things, gratitude and entitlement, as opposites. It's sort of interesting. It's yeah. not sort of obvious to begin with, but if you can find an attitude of grateful, of gratitude, sort of to ask yourself in any given moment, no matter how dreadful it is, what do I have to be grateful for here? And you know, it's funny, it, there is always something. Yeah, and there is. And focusing on that, and it's sort of it's sort of trite, you know. It sounds sort of obvious, but but uh, most people don't live their lives with that attitude of gratitude. No, and and especially at that time, that stage, you know, in the yeah. middle of a divorce or a separation, or but if you could if if you could just point out to your kids the yeah. things that are good, the things that are working, and then have them point it out to you, maybe make exactly. it part of your dinner conversation every day. Exactly. You change it. Then, then all of a sudden it doesn't seem like everything's dark. Precisely, precisely. And I love how you put that, that if you can do it for yourself and sort of model that, is, yeah, you know, things are really rough now, but we really do have each other, don't we? Yeah. Or, you know, whatever it is you do have. And it's just sort of focusing on that and getting, getting your kids. I love this concept that you just raised of sitting around at the dinner table and just Asking that question very simply, just once, don't make a big deal out of it, but, you know, just have a gratitude moment. What do you have to be grateful for today, Susie? Um, and, and you just get that, like, a two-minute conversation. You can change you can change the tone of the family. Hmm. Yeah, and, and it really is. It's just almost a redirection of what mm-hmm. we're seeing. And then once we see more of it, then you don't have the other byproducts of kind of entitlement, which is the pity when you don't pity party when you don't get what you want, or exactly. the narcissism or selfishness that might kick yeah. in, and it's powerful. Exactly. That's a great exactly. point. It what, is it's really interesting to me that like there's solid research now on the importance of gratitude. Yeah, it's fascinating. So it is, and it's such a simple thing. You know, we you could have yeah. read it back in your little kids' books or. In, exactly. in the Bible or wherever. What was? Uh, what are some more? What are, we've got a couple more minutes. What? What else okay. do we need to focus on? Um, one of the the things that um, I find again, it's another sort of very simple but very powerful concept, is the one of the what, what Carol Dweck calls a growth mindset, where what you do is when you have a setback, you learn to welcome setbacks. You welcome failures as learning opportunities. Hmm. So when something apparently, something appears to be bad when it happens, so yeah, suffer the badness, but then say to yourself, okay, what can I learn from this? So again, it's a bit like the gratitude thing where you're reframing your experience. You're accepting it as it is, but you're saying, okay, there's something to be learned here. And there always is. It's fascinating to me. Yeah. Any failure or, or obstacle has its learning potential. And if you can look at that, look at, at your experiences that way, it is transformative. Well, think about that. If every problem becomes an opportunity, you've already changed it to a positive. Yep. And then, and, and just to know that, oh, okay, it's, it's, a, it's not just a setback and a kick in the face. It's a, this is, this is a moment to regroup, to relearn, 
Wow. I mean, that's powerful. And just and just say we're setting back and now we're going to learn and we're going to then move forward. Exactly. And it it moves in, you know, thinking about it in the parenting context for both parents and kids. It moves people away from shame, embarrassment, humiliation. So, yeah, I had a setback. People do. And that's mm. what happens. We're, I'm learning. I'm growing. That's why I had this setback. Yeah. Um, we have about one more minute, Donna. What would you say? I always like to ask the question about what's the one thing that makes the biggest difference, um, either, even if you've said it before or that you could yeah. still say that would make the biggest difference for parents to feel good about their parenting through these hard times of divorce or separation? Okay. I for me, the, the basic foundational concept is, you know, in the, the words that I use, are loving attunement. Mm. So if you can be present to yourself and your kids, if you can listen with love, you will be just fine. Mm. Attuned, meaning kind of registering on their level, connected, yep. and exactly. lovingly connected and present. That's powerful. Precisely, yep. Man, and you know what? It almost sounds like that would be the answer because it seems it like in the divorce, what we would miss, yeah. we think, are is just our moms and dads. But a lot of times we're not even present or attuned anyway. Right. And exactly. so now this might create a really healing process if we could actually be connected in those spaces. Yeah. And, and it's a process, right? Yeah. Be patient with yourself around this. Do what you can. And so if today you've got five minutes of loving attunement, well, that's wonderful. Maybe tomorrow you'll have six. That was Dr. Donna Matthews, uh, from uh, the author of the book Raising Happily Productive Kids in Every Kind of Family. Wonderful, wonderful insight. Really, we love our kids to death, right? We just want to do what we can to help them be the best that they can be. It's now time to um, get to our empty news segment. Who better to help us with that than Jeffrey Liam Simpson? Jeffrey? Uh Uh-oh. When you hear this music, what do you think or how does it make you feel? Makes me feel at first like I'm being, like, about to be judged. Really? Then, I think, grab my racket and start swinging. Oh, dear. Well, that's not the effect I was going for at all. It's interesting because uh, you've been to a McDonald's before. Sure. You will admit it. Yes. And what's one of the great features at McDonald's if it's not the food? It's the train. The, The little train they used to have when I was a kid that only kids could fit into. Oh. The train to the, like, uh, the hamburger. Okay. Is this the one town. you put a quarter in? No. Okay. It's just rigid, hard so train. So you, you walk into a McDonald's. You always see people there on their laptops that aren't eating any food. Yes. They're clearly there for the free Wi-Fi. Well, it's it can be a problem at times. <laughs> and there's a, uh, there's a McDonald's in London that is considered London's roughest McDonald's. And they've actually been able to cut down on antisocial youth's behavior after turning off the free Wi-Fi and playing classical music. Oh, really? Yeah. They scatter. Yeah. 
So, I mean, it's considered an awful McDonald's. There were 71 reports of crime in and around the branch in 2017 alone. Police were called to the location for bodily, uh, I almost said bodily farm incidents. That's a different thing, though. Yeah, that's a totally different Bodily harm incidents, knife possession, and suspected there were drug deals happening in the bathroom. So this is a bad McDonald's. Yeah. But so far, this year, cops have been called just twice after the location started blasting the likes of Beethoven and Mozart. <laughs> so maybe there's some correlation between uh, playing Mozart. That's, and that's having... actually pretty powerful. Yeah. So, okay. Now, here's a different question, though. So what would happen if we were to play this version of Beethoven? What sort of behavior do you think there would be if it was this version? Oh, yeah. Ow! Do you think people, like, they would be just about to get into a fight, and then yeah. at the last second, they would just start yeah. doing the they disco? they just start boogieing. Oh, this would bring everyone together? And then you'd have some more fries with that shake. That, abs- absolutely. <laughs> there would be a lot of shake going on in that <laughs> McDonald's. Oh, this I'm willing is great. to bet this would this would get rid of the uh, the crime there too. This is how you change the world. This yeah. is how you bring peace back. It's disco. By the way, the first song, yeah. Beethoven's Fifth. This is from Saturday Night Fever, and it's a fifth of Beethoven. Oh, let's see, little disco goes a long, long way. Great stuff, folks. See, it's just in the music. That's all you need to make a great day and a happy a happy trip to McDonald's. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Doing what we can to bring you the latest, the greatest information to, to help you have a healthier, happier life. Welcome to the program. Jeff and Terry on board. They've been researching constantly, and uh, with all of that research, we've put together a show. It's interesting, too. In the last hour, we earned that, or we learned that classical music decreases crime in McDonald's, but here at work, it uh, brings out aggression in you. No, absolutely. You were saying you that you were about to take a racket to me. Well, no, no, no. That's just, the, it's just where my head goes. Okay. Because I was raised on... Um, Einstein for kids. What's that called? Baby Einstein. Baby Einstein. That wasn't around back then. Whoa, that was rude. Unless your mom was the That's... one in her basement with the black drop, yeah. uh, doing the puppets and all that stuff. Yeah, and she sold it to millions. and got millions of, or sold it to Disney and got millions. That's my mom. Okay, millionaire Einstein creator. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be great? Living on that money. Hey, uh, lots to talk about today. We're going to be getting into ways to unplug when you're short on time. You got to unplug, Terry. That's what people keep saying. Have you ever unplugged? No. no. Uh, oh, it's more there you court, go. But... Now you're unplugged. No, I've never unplugged. Well, you need. You probably need to. Why? I think you're getting stressed. I'm not. I feel very relaxed. I accomplish what I need to accomplish. Things aren't getting in the way of other things. 
I don't see a need to unplug. I, I hear the guests we have on. I read the articles talking about how it it'll it'll make you uh, you know being plugged in gives you a negative sense of reality type of a yeah. com- and I don't really have that happening, so I'm not sure. Wow. Well, that's not what your wife says. Yeah. Terry doesn't have a plug, so he's just the standing water that's sitting there, just content. Yeah. Mm. You're like the Dead Sea. (laughs) Great. (laughs) You're the standing water. It works. You need to have a living water flow through you. I'm sensing an analogy here. Anywho, we'll get to that later. Lots to cover, um, but let's get to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what else, because you never unplug, what else have you learned that we need to know? President Trump has stayed in touch with Rob Porter, the former White House staff secretary who stepped down after allegations that he had abused two former wives came to light, according to three people familiar with the conversations. And as told, uh, President Trump has told some advisors that he hopes Mr. Porter will return to work in the West Wing. The president calls with Mr. Porter have increased over the last few weeks as the number of people he is close to in the White House has dwindled because of the large number of staff departures, the people familiar with the call said. The president has told his advisors that he has talked with and he knows he probably cannot bring Mr. Porter back, but he has made clear that he misses the staff structure that Mr. Porter had helped build and implement. So he wants this guy back. Yeah. yeah. How How do you bring him back? You don't. don't. You just call him every day. No, you just. He's still there, just not there. Well, uh, several people have been let go that are going to, and immediately were named as members of the Trump re-election campaign. Yeah, right. So they're they're not good for the White House, but yeah, you can run on my my re-election campaign. Wow, help me out. So I mean, there's just there's people with alleged issues and incidents that. You just shouldn't associate with. The story goes on and says that people who were forced to leave the White House, Trump, he kind of identifies with them because he feels like he's under attack. Right, right. They were under attack, so they're kind of of the same cut. So he kind of likes to be with that person. He understands them. He yeah. can empathize with them. Okay. So the, the president does show empathy occasionally. There you go. Just, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's good. Okay. Uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy and Ruth Bader Ginsburg are the two oldest sitting judges on the Supreme Court. And Ginsburg has made clear she has no intention of stepping down while President Trump's in office. Yeah. That makes Kennedy the next probable departure, and several Republican senators told The Hill that they hope he steps down by the summer so that the nomination of his replacement can galvanize the GOP base to retain the Senate majority in the 2018 midterms. So this just really sounds like a story trying to get him to step down. Yeah. And but says, he's already got his plan. He is a Republican. His wife's a Republican. His kids are Republican. You'd think he'd want his successor to be appointed by a Republican president, said one Senate Republican. Well, many, not to be many wonder if Donald is a Republican. Well, yeah. The only reason he, we won the White House and kept the Senate was because the open Supreme Court seat, the senator added, arguing that the same circumstances could assure victory in the 2018 midterms. Mm. But yeah, it would galvanize the the electorate would get out. You'd certainly get the Republicans out mm. if you thought that you got to save this for the Supreme Court. But boy, you know who's got it bad is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who now knows she can't get sick. Yeah. She's got to go two and a half more years. She can't 
I mean, that's pressure. Stephen Colbert uh, yeah. couple, last week worked out with her. Yeah. I mean, hold on. Say that again. He worked out with her. With Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. W- worked out with the 80-something-year-old yeah. justice. And she had her trainer there, uh-huh. and they did the, the same workout, same push-ups, yeah. all this stuff, and Stephen Colbert was winded. And she was in that cute little... I mean, yeah, she does pump iron and sits on the exercise ball. Yeah. Um, she was also wearing one of those black uh, exercise suits with a little doily kind of collar. She wasn't, on. but oh. uh, yeah. Oh, that's what I saw. So if you want to see some of that, it's kind of funny with uh, Colbert trying to act all manly and then not being able to Keep do up the with same it. workout. She's so. fit. That's cool. New data published Monday found major geographic disparities in community health across 10 health-related categories like food and nutrition, environment, equity, and public safety. County rankings compiled by U.S. News and World Reports compared nearly 3,000 counties to determine how community health is affected by factors like housing and the local economy. Population health was an important component in the ranking, factoring in access to health uh, care and prevalence of health conditions. Counties in Minnesota, California, Iowa, and Colorado were top-ranked in population health, while counties in Missouri, Ohio, Kentucky, Georgia, and Florida were lowest. Huh. Uh, meanwhile, many counties near Silicon Valley rank poor in equity, defined as income and social equality across demographic groups, which is understood. Right. They have a, there's a growing homeless problem in California right next to all the millionaires' homes. Yeah. And they're trying to figure out how do you fix that. And I mean, the answer is give money, but eh, do we? Do we need to really give them money? I don't know. Colorado dominated the top in, for environmental rankings, while New York and California uh, counties scored poorly in housing availability. Counties in Virginia, Colorado, New Mexico, and Massachusetts were all ranked highest overall. Huh. There you have it. There's a bunch of stuff about places where you may live. Other news. Finally, one day after a, a Romanian court told a man he was officially dead, despite evidence to the contrary. <laughs> Another court has declared that a man who was truly dead could get his driver's license back. I'm not dead yet. A court in northern, a northern city on Thursday confirmed that one uh, one man should have his license returned and be reimbursed a fine he paid for speeding. He was fined and temporarily lost his license in March 2017, but appealed the punishment in court and won an interim ruling. He died in October before the ruling was final. Police uh, still appealed, but this month they lost their appeal. In almost an opposite situation last week, a Romanian man who had been officially declared dead lost his bid to have his death uh, certificate canceled. A 63-year-old cook returned from Turkey in January, found out his wife had declared him dead. He tried to get his death certificate overturned in court, but his appeal was rejected because his request was filed too late. I told you I was in Turkey. (sighs) You didn't tell me anything. So the dead guy gets his driver's license back. Yeah. Because they just, you know. Yeah, because cool. well, he's not dead. Well, no, he I was feel dead. happy. The other guy returns from Turkey. His wife had declared him dead, and he tried to get that overturned, and they looked right at him and said, we can't overturn sorry, your death. Sorry, buddy. Yeah. You're dead. You're dead to me. Justice. How many Justice times have served. you said that to me? Uh, this week? Yeah, this week alone. One, two, three, four, five, six. Seven times. Wow, it's Tuesday. It's only Tuesday. <laughs> You're dead to me. Hey, by the way, did did your mom ever tell you not to eat orange snow? Uh, it's always yellow snow. It's orange snow. Uh, apparently, people feel like they've landed on Mars as they're skiing in Sochi, Sochi, Russia, hmm. because sandstorms across the Sahara Desert have blown 
the North African sands into Sochi, and now the snow is orange. See, but I would feel orange snow would be more difficult to resist because it reminds me of a creamsicle. Yeah, we'll try it. See how that goes down. It's not a creamsicle. Grainy. It's a grainy, gritty sand. And now uh, it's covering an entire mountain in Russia. Oh, boy. It, it's kind of ominous. It looks like uh, a desert. Like what? Armageddon, the end of the world. <clears throat> That's crazy. But you can still ski and snowboard. On. Oh, absolutely. Except it will, it will scrape all of the wax <laughs> off of your board. Right. But other than that, you're fine. It's a natural sandpaper. It's Yeah. So it's, you always sand down your board after you, you do it. This, it's not surfing. Mm. Anyway, um, interesting interesting stuff. So if if you see orange snow, just know – I mean unless, of course, it's in the middle of Iowa. Then you got another problem. We'll continue the journey, folks. Uh, straight ahead, we're going to find out ways to unplug when you're short on time. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I think we can all agree that we need a break from work sometimes, don't we? You know, when you think of rest and relaxation and recovery, you probably picture sunbathing under some palm trees with a tropical smoothie in hand. But what if you don't have time to relax? All that planning and traveling might be even more stressful than just plowing through your job. Well, a while ago, uh, we had Paula Davis-Lack on the show, and uh, she taught us five ways to unplug when we're short on time. I started the interview by making a joke that I need to unplug myself. I was talking with a coaching client last night, and she, she was talking about how she finally unplugged from work. She's a physician because she got sick. And so uh, <laughs> I think it's really interesting that a lot of us are starting to think like um, – Illness is is now forcing us to actually slow down and, and unplug a little bit. Oh, that is horrible! I, I just did it. I spent a week out last week, and um, but it, it, I, it, you don't unwind because now in my head I'm thinking I've got so much more to do now. Oh, absolutely, absolutely! Because one of the things that she had mentioned too is that she uh, she actually didn't open her computer for a few days, which she said felt really great. But then she realized, oh, my gosh, I'm so far behind on answering emails and getting, you know, back up to speed with where I, you know, would have been had I not been sick. So it's a double-edged sword. Oh, and this is something that I, I'm assuming more and more companies have to deal with because we – it used to be, you know, you could leave your job because the phones weren't connected, the emails weren't connected to you. Now it seems like I'm, I'm always on. We are always on – at work. And it's uh, really something that's snowballed into a, a really big problem that I think uh, a lot of companies are facing, especially, you know, when they when they give me a call and they say, hey, can you come in and talk to our employees about burnout? And, and I do. And one of the things and one of the questions that I always hear is, you know, how does technology sort of drive all of this? I mean, and we know that um, we are expected to be tethered to our devices 24-7. And even if that's not the message that's sent in your workplace culture, we just feel that that's the case. We hear that ding or we see that little light flash on and, and it draws our attention and we, and we feel like we have to be responsive and 
that cuts into family time, that cuts into personal time, that cuts into relaxation and recovery time. And, you know, we're really seeing the effects with increased burnout rates. Mm. You talk about internal recovery versus external recovery. Explain that to us. Sure. So internal recovery, uh, I think a lot of people think, especially, you know, you're working hard at work and you just sort of pound through and you want to get home and that's when you'll have time to rest and relax and catch up. Um, But the research is is really clear in showing that if you really want to slow down the effects of burnout and manage your stress in a better way, you have to be able to find moments of recovery and recharge both at work, and so that's the internal recovery, and outside of work. So that's the after work hours, that's the weekends, that's the vacation. So you have to become good at combining both of those. Mm. Yeah, you can't either or it. No, but we do. Yeah, we do, don't we? Yes. <laughs> but then you're just burning the candle at both ends, and eventually you're just a burnout. Absolutely. Hmm. I think that's what I'm going through right now. So um, <laughs> when you say recovery, uh, is that different than recreation? We always hear about we need more recreation, and I love the word recreation, where we're mm-hmm. supposed to be recreating ourselves. But it seems like recovery is more like putting yourself back together. I think it can be both. I think one of the problems that we see is that when you don't recover enough, when you don't take that recreation time or that recharge time, it's going to take you longer and it might be a little bit more difficult to maybe put yourself back together, if you will, from from all of the stress, the accumulated stress you've been experiencing. Um, So so recovery, I think, is really meant to be really a, a daily habit that we start to get into so that we don't have to sort of pick up the pieces in a more drastic way, you know, after weeks or months or even years of, of ignoring kind of what we're supposed to be doing on a, on a habitual basis every day. Mm, man, it really is. It's um, like uh, I was supposed to start this exercise program that we were filming for TV, and <laughs> I thought, but I was sick last week. And even this week, they're like, hey, so do you want to shoot it Friday? And I'm thinking, I really... I feel like if I go try to exercise, which seems like a great recovery idea, except yeah. not if you're exhausted. No, it, 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 so then it sort of defeats the purpose. Right, so, yeah, then I'm just, it's going to, it'll be another week or two or three. No, and, and one of the things, too, so if you can get in a habit of exercising on a regular basis, it might have downstream effects like producing fewer colds or illnesses or kind of helping to inoculate you more from yeah. stress down, down the road. But um, once you're actually sick, I mean, I, I've just been going through this, too. I, I have this lovely workout routine that I love. Um, it's a kickboxing routine. But when I'm so stuffed up and I can't, like, bend my head over or I feel like I'm going to pass out because I'm so stuffed up, the exercise at that point is, is pointless. Yeah. You may as well just, you know, do your funeral services. Get those ready. <laughs> hey, um, let's go through some of your points, and then we'll take a break. Let's just actually do the first one. You you talk about a Zagarnik effect. Explain what is that. We need to tame the Zagarnik effect. What in the world? <laughs> yeah, I thought that that was sort of an interesting little uh, term to throw in there. But it refers basically to the researcher who discovered that uh, – when we sort of look at our to-do list and we see all of these unfinished tasks, we tend to ruminate, which is to just sort of think over and over, and we can't escape kind of that circular thinking in our head. 
about everything that we didn't accomplish. Mm. And I hear this from so many people who wake up in the middle of the night or they are laying in bed just staring at the ceiling because they're just thinking about all of the stuff that they didn't get done and that they're going to have to face and do the next day that's keeping them awake. And so the way to really um, overcome that, and, and I literally have a pad of paper by my bedside, which is to just get it out of your head. So I call it a brain dump or a brain spill. So if you're thinking about all the stuff that you didn't do or you need to do, just write it down. Even if it's 2 in the morning, it's just the act of transferring it from your brain onto a pad of paper really lets your brain go, oh, thank you. I don't need to you know, keep thinking about this anymore. And it really shifts gears and helps you be able to fall asleep in a better way. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that's really important is to actually have it be a piece of paper because I've had, I've had folks try this where they're like, oh, I'm just going to make a note on my phone. And what happens is then they open their phone, they start to check email, that winds them up more, mm. and the process you know, doesn't, really, doesn't really help. Yeah. I taught time management forever, and we would always say, well, don't whatever you do, don't pull out another Post-it note kind of thing. But now we pull out the phone, but the phone is a stimulant, right? It, it wakes oh, us yeah. up. It makes it so our mind spins faster. And so interesting. Write it down. Make your list. You can then take a picture of it later and put yeah, it in your you phone. Yeah, your phone later and take a picture of yeah. it if you want. If you really are obsessed with getting it <laughs> in your right. phone. Oh, that's some right. great. That's some great. I did not know the Zagarnik effect, that tendency to ruminate. You talked to us about the Zagarnik effect, how we need to tame it, which is our tendency to ruminate. So instead of thinking and thinking about what we should be doing, make a list, get it out of your head, write it down, and then go to bed. Um, another tool you give us is to create an 11-minute habit. What do you mean by that? Yes. So there's some really interesting science around how habits are created, and it's really this three-step process, essentially. So when we think about a habit that you have, a habit that you want to maybe start, or maybe a habit that you want to break. So for me, it's easier to think about a habit that I want to break, which is what I write about in the right. article. So, so what happens when you're forming a habit is the first step is, is a cue. So it's that trigger that tells your brain to sort of go into automatic mode, like, hey, we've gone through this, we've gone down this pathway before, here we go again. The, the second part of a habit is the routine. So it's the actual physical, mental, or emotional activity that you do. And then the last step is the reward or the payoff. What's mm. that lovely little feeling or thing that you get that makes you go, oh, that's right. This is why I love doing this particular activity. Um, it's going to cause me to do this activity over and over again. So that's really the three-step process for creating a habit. And the 11 minute part was really just um, actually from a friend of mine, because she thought she's like, I'm super busy, but I know I can at least find 11 minute 11 minutes in my day to either work on building something or work on curbing something. Mm. So in the article, I just write about sort of one of the one of the habits that I'm trying to get better at breaking, which is this habit that I have in the evenings of wanting to eat something sweet. And that usually means making chocolate chip cookies. Uh, <laughs> For myself. And so what I've noticed is that right around 8 o'clock, I, I, I get bored. You know, like I'm not working on anything. I'm sort of done for the day. Our daughter is in bed. Uh, and so I'm just sort of sitting there. And that uh, triggers this need to like, okay, actually get up and do something. So I uh, then go and make cookies. And then at the, when I'm done, I eat the cookie and I go, oh, this warm, wonderful cookie. Mm. So delicious. Um, but instead of doing that, what I'm trying to do is to sort of replace that with a smoothie or something that's a little healthier that will still give my brain that little fix 
that goes, oh, yeah, yeah. it tastes great. But instead of it being a cookie, it's, it's something that's a little bit healthier. Yeah, and it's but it's also you can recognize, oh, hey, it's time to make my smoothie. You create a cue. I do this with couples that are arguing, and instead of doing the fight-or-flight routine, you could make a new habit of recognizing emotion. or I mean, and it doesn't matter what it is as long as you're kind of – turning it into now a healthier automatic response. Sure. And, and what my friend had suggested in terms of the 11 minutes is just to, if you're thinking about starting a brand new habit, so we're all thinking about, you know, New Year's resolutions are coming up and what do we want to start doing more of? Usually I hear a lot of exercise, you know, resolutions and things. So really um, what, what is recommended is just to spend 30 seconds or, or less on the queue uh, 10 minutes or so on the routine part, and then 30 seconds or less reflecting on the reward. Mm. So just starting to build that into your day. And and if you actually, that, it seems like sometimes we don't ever, we don't spend any time focusing on the reward, but it's the reward that made the whole other 11 minutes worth it. Oh, absolutely. And especially if you're talking about a positive habit that you want to start, uh, not not blowing by that great feeling that you have when you have exercised or, you know, a lot of people talk about the runner's high. If, you know, if you're, if you're a runner, that good feeling that you notice, you know, even if it was an intense workout and your muscles are sore, maybe later on in the day, you're like, wow, I actually noticed that I have more energy. Making note of that is really important. What do you say to the person that thinks, you know, that taking a break uh, meditating in the day, taking a nap even in the day. It's just, it's not, it's a waste of time. You shouldn't be doing any of that. <laughs> oh, I hear this all the time, especially with my uh, corporate work, because I think when I suggest to people that they need to take breaks during the day, managers and leaders all of a sudden perk up and the look on their face is like, no, right. they need to do, they can't stop. And, and one of the things that I really try to emphasize, especially if you're talking about that internal recovery at work, is that it doesn't need to be long and really shouldn't be long. So we're not advocating that you go, you know, spend an hour recovering or relaxing. It's more like how do you build in these small little doses of five minutes here, maybe even 10 minutes there. And, you know, we know that there's a lot of effective things that can be accomplished in five or ten minutes. Meditating is one of them. Um, a recent study actually talked about how um, you can just reflect. So just do like five minutes of re- reflective writing about how you feel you're making a difference at work, how um, you're deriving some meaning from your work, if that is something that you actually do derive as meaning from your work, or, or even something simple like showing gratitude to someone who you work with. Like, mm. have you forgotten to thank somebody who helped you with this big project three weeks ago? And it doesn't take any time at all to shoot somebody an email or actually walk down the hall and acknowledge and say thank you. So it's little bits and doses that should just be kind of sprinkled in during your day. Yeah. What Do you suggest any technology we should be using that would alleviate some of this daily stress? Yeah. So here, here we're talking about how we're always tethered to our devices and we, you know, we can't um, break free. But I think that what can really help people is to take advantage of um, different apps that are on your phone that can help you, uh, whether you want to start that meditation habit or, or do um, something else or track something else. Um, so one of the apps that I talk about in the article is something called Moment. So that actually tracks your frequency of automatic phone use. So if you're actually 
concerned that, you know, you're reflexively without really any purpose kind of staring at your phone all the time, download that app and that can help you um, sort of track that. Uh, another app is called Happify, mm, yeah. and that um, is one that delivers science-based activities to your phone to help increase your well-being. Um, the app Headspace uh, is one that I have tried that offers some guided meditations and mindfulness strategies. So there's lots of different uh, apps and ways that you can use technology for good instead of for evil. Oh, man, I did Headspace once um, and loved it. I meditated in my car before I went into my office when I was going to go work with clients. I, I, I set it for an automatic response, and then I got away from the habit, and now yeah. it emails me every day at about 3 yeah. o'clock saying, time for Headspace, and I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, you're driving me crazy. Now I can't. Now I'm totally stressed. Exactly. It, yeah. But so it's great. I- yeah, I tried. I did the same thing. I actually tried it for a little bit, and then I stopped using it. And I ended up. I, I actually took it off off my phone for the same reason you're talking about. How it was the constant reminder started to be something that was stressing me out yeah. and helping me. So. And then I just noticed I just started making cookies every day at three, and I've gained thirty pounds. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I call it. I'm going to make an app called Belly Space, and it's oh, all about okay. growing your belly space. <laughs> That's right. Hey, uh, as we wrap up, um, talk to us about what we should, like, what would you say, Paula, is the one thing, if we're going to just say one thing we can do to create some of that space in our hearts, our heads, to decompress while we're working, um, what would what would be the number one thing we can do? Wow. So there's, there's really a lot, but one of the ones that I tend to keep coming back to is this whole notion of, of trying to, to find ways to increase your positive emotions during the day. Um, We as human beings are hardwired to notice and seek out and remember negative stuff. And with everything that's going around in our world right now and the holidays are stressful for so many people, it's so so easy to focus on what's going wrong and it's all going to heck and it's never going to get any better. But but just remembering, and even if that is tracking on, uh, you know, your phone or a piece of paper, a couple of good things that happen each day with a reflection about why that thing is important. Um, people who do that activity on a regular basis, so, you know, four or five times a week or so, notice less depression, higher life satisfaction, and um, better relationships and better sleep, which mm. is something that I think we all need more of. So, so just finding ways to increase your diet, as I call it, of, of positive emotions, I think, is something that's really easy, doesn't take time. Um, that people can start to do. Beautiful. Paula Davis-Lack is her name. Go check out the website, stressandresilience.com. Wonderful resources there. Her blog, she's everywhere from uh, the Matt Townsend Show to Steve Harvey's show, Women's Health, Psychology Today. She's a wonderful resource. Also has a wonderful ebook, Addicted to Busy, your blueprint for burnout prevention. We'll take a break. Come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Yes, it's time for some more empty news with Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Jeffrey, what's going on? Well, you know, earlier we uh, had some McDonald's news, and we found out that if you play classical music at a McDonald's, then maybe there will be less crime. Yeah. And people might get down and boogie, uh, depending on which version of that (laughs) classical song that you play. 
But uh, I have some fantastic news if you're a McDonald's fan. What? Well, you had to have been there. Those are always the worst stories when you're like, I guess you had to have been there. Yeah. Right? Oh, it was so good. You had to have been there. So this is in Southern California. Um, It's bad news for the restaurants, but for anybody that was driving that day that was following this truck transporting McDonald's fries, it was a great day because a truck carrying boxes of fries overturned on the 5 freeway in Irvine early Sunday morning. Luckily, the driver wasn't hurt, and uh, but he did lose the entire load of oh, the frozen fries, boy. which were scattered along the side of the freeway. And so it, people were just out there, you know, foraging for fries, and then you can take them home and refry them, and boom, I mean, wash them. I guarantee you still won't be able to make them as good as they do, no, though. No. Well, because they put in a little extra love. Say what you will about McDonald's. Everyone is a closeted McDonald's french fry addict. Well, except for those special people that have never tasted one. Um, They're lying. Those are called liars. <laughs> Is that what they're called? Yes. Sorry, you're a liar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everybody loves those. Everybody There's not does. one person. Uh, I remember Julia Child doing an interview where she was talking about how much she loved McDonald's french fries. Really? Yes. But she said, oh, I liked it better when they had the... The older oil, the fries were better. There was a better crunch to them. Wow. I'm Julia Child. Julia, good to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. <laughs> that uh, I didn't know Julia was here today. This was great. She could just drop by. She just walked right past the mic. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. The little she was, mic drop. She you didn't understand her very well because she was eating some McDonald's yeah. fries. Anyway, um, listen to this. Luckily, it didn't sound like people were foraging the fries. It did, said traffic wasn't affected all that much. Yeah. But apparently, there are three thieves that have arrested 52 coolers from Yetis. Hold on. From Yetis? From Yetis. Were, were they Yeti coolers or were they... F- being run or stolen by Yetis. I should specify uh, they were Yeti coolers. Yeah, because that's different. Yeah. It's just a brand. But the Because the, if they saw a Yeti, I mean, that now that's a story. But the headline wouldn't be as exciting. No. Completely so, boring. So just a, as a side note, what do you think a Yeti keeps in his cooler? Um, I'd say like probably like some Yeti power drink. Really? Yeah, probably some Yeti um, mini carrots just for the Yeti diet. Hmm. Because okay. they're very health conscious. Yeah. And so, oh, by the way, and some beef jerky. Because oh, yeah. They, those Yetis, I've seen commercials where they eat a lot of beef jerky. Do you think they get residuals for those commercials? They I really doubt ought it. to. It's hard to. It's hard to track them down to pay them. That's true. Yeah. I mean, every time you see them, it's like really shaky footage. Yeah. yeah. And it's of questionable sources. Right. Um, yeah, so 52 Yeti coolers were stolen worth more than $16,000. What? Yeah. 29-year-old Demetrius Johnson was found standing outside of a hotel loading a Yeti cooler into a trailer filled with over 40 other coolers. About a dozen more coolers were recovered along with stolen Adidas clothing. And uh, uh, let's see... 
All of the stolen property has, property has been recovered and returned to the sporting goods outlets they were stolen from, as well as the Yetis from which they were stolen. That is a lot. I mean, that's a lot of Yetis. Yeah. And, I mean, this is going to lead perfectly into one of our sponsors. Hmm. Um, well, I it's... It's really difficult to categorize or even describe. I'm not even going to bother. I'm just going to play it. Traversing through the boskage, searching for my woodland nymph. Searching, always searching, but never finding. The sight of my knotted mane flowing through the night's breeze cannot return my elusive love. And the call, ever-growing, will never be heard. Translation I seek the musk that screams for me That blandishes her toward me Levut Smell the passion BYU Radio Talk about good Yeah, baby. It's time to now shoot it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. And one. What And what? We I... used that music for a segment on the show. Did you? So we love this song. It's, it's pretty hip, isn't it? Yeah. It, it's hip and cool. It's just, it's just how we roll here. Hey, guys, uh, I had a really big interview. I'm sure everyone was abuzz in the, at BYU Broadcasting because I, I interviewed a guy that has researched the free throw. And what did you learn? I learned a lot of really interesting things. For example, um, did you know that uh, how many revolutions you, you want to put a little backspin on your free throw? Did you know that? Okay. Uh, three revolutions per second. Is that why Rick Barry was so successful? I don't know. Didn't count as revolutions. Did you? Well, I would imagine if it's three revolutions. It's three revolutions. Then he probably had three revolutions because if you have, he's the greatest free throw shooter in the history of the NBA. He totally did then, obviously. And he uh, three revolutions, ideal. More than that, you might you might overspin it. Then then the spin itself becomes a major play. You, where do you want to aim? Here's the question for the two pros. Do you want to aim front of the rim, center of the basket, back of the rim? I would say you aim at the back of the rim. I would say back. Back of the rim is yeah. the answer. Bing! Uh, by the way... Which is um, interesting. Why wouldn't you want it in the center, right? You'd think you'd want but the But if center. you have the backspin, it That's right. slides off the back. And, and most of us, uh, you know, we're not great judges, so aim to the back. Um, by the way, do you want to release low or release high? I would say release high. The data shows high. You want to release high. Do you, I asked if low, you, you don't want your shot to get blocked. No, low. But like in a traditional shot, free throw, but you don't want to have a different shot for your free throw versus a By shot. the way, why, this is why we don't usually do the granny shot. The granny shot is kind of not as effective because it's a low-release shot. Okay. Statistically. Hey, by the way, another— And little, actually. And, and actually. And, and you just look weird, right? Um, also, did you know that—did uh, you know the um, best trajectory— would be the apex of your arch should be a couple inches under the back, the top of the backboard. I've wondered about this because when I watch uh, professional basketball players shoot, 
They shoot it higher than the average person. Yes. They give the ball a chance to go in. The angle is high. High angle. Yeah. It's coming in from up top as opposed to from an angle or like a frozen rope. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and he, yeah. He, so top of the backboard. Okay. Uh, by the way, the, um, the launch angle, if, if you've got a protractor while you're shooting your free throws, you would want the launch angle to be exactly 52 degrees. 52 degrees. 52 degrees. Okay, I see that. And um, so it's pretty high coming out. Fifty-two degrees. Fifty-two degrees. It also again. Mine's would, probably in the like the thirties. Well, it's I mean, really but wild. that also explains why you're on radio <laughs> and television. And te- yeah, but that's why you're not on the court. I guess I'm saying. Yeah. Oh yeah, but yeah. Never, but by the way, well, I'm too old. It also depends on your height, of course, right? So well, kind of. So some of these things, some of these things go back to height. And again, you you would want one fluid motion. So these guys that kind of do a motion and then they get their arms up and then they kind of just do a wrist flip, not necessarily idyllic, but they still may be really good at it because they're just controlling all the variables. One fluid motion. One fluid okay. motion. Kind of like you guys when you do Sports Nation. One fluid motion. Two people. One fluid motion. Like a. Pacific Rim robot. Yeah. Well, and I, I yeah, exactly. The, it's like the Toyota robot that can shoot free throws. Um, so they have a robot that can shoot free yeah, throws? Yeah, 100% accurate. Really? And, really? and by the way, they said they want to take on two people, and uh, one would be Steph Curry, and the other would be Shaquille O'Neal. Who do you think would win that game? No contest. Yeah. Obviously, Shaquille O'Neal. Right now, all Steph is doing is not playing basketball. I know. It's kind of He's sad. injured. I know. It's not I good. hope the Jazz play the Warriors in the first round of the playoffs. I do too. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> we we really <laughs> need to play, play the, the Warriors. Blazers. Oh, I know, but we okay. Hey guys, help I me don't with this. Want the Warriors? No way. You man. hate? Yeah, I get it. Um, <laughs> so what's on your show? You guys are, I mean, thinking of one fluid motion. Okay, Gonzaga wanted stuff. It seems they got it. The <gasps> West Coast Conference announced. Some real changes to regular season scheduling, postseason scheduling, revenue distribution with NCA units, and potentially uh, future nuanced different TV contracts. Uh, this is huge news. Really? So, so is it they're enough not going to keep anywhere. Gonzaga in the league? Oh, we don't That's know yet. That's the question. We don't know. We're going to discuss those changes in depth and uh, what they might mean, not only for Gonzaga, but for BYU. Does Gonzaga have a football team? They do not. So, hmm. Interesting. Men's hoops is the cash cow by far. Oh, yeah. In fact, I would argue they're the best team in the West. Yeah. Best program. That seems right, doesn't right it? Right now? Absolutely. They're so, they're so consistent, yeah. They are to basketball what uh, the women's BYU racquetball team is to BYU. Um, sort kinda, of, yeah. I kind of The national champs. Analogy. Yeah. Um, so, so that's kind of big news. They're really trying to keep them there. They're trying to keep them there. And uh, an article came out Saturday saying, hey, the next two weeks are going to be interesting in a perfect world. Uh, Mike Rothy, Gonzaga athletic director, saying in the perfect world in two weeks we'd have a decision. Well, two days later, the West Coast Conference announces all these things. Yes. Yes. Yep. (laughs) Well played, WCC. And (laughs) I am confident that Gonzaga was involved in the changes. Oh, the president's council approved it, so I would imagine that the president of Gonzaga was involved on the conference call. Wow. They're staying. We'll see. This is much ado. I think they're staying. I, th- I think Spencer does, too. You think they're staying? 
Yes, and I have thought they were staying from the get-go, really. I mean, the idea was fun, but I think this is a major power play for Gonzaga to get ultimately what they wanted, and now I think they're going to get everything they want and more. And some and, extra buffet they, coupons to the Orleans. Oh, they should. come on. They deserve everything they're going to get. But who, you, you, only need, you can only go through the buffet once anyway. <sighs> Not if you're Gonzaga. It's true. It is a buffet. If well, you're guys, the Zags, you own the buffet. You are the buffet. <laughs> guys, all right. Have a great show. I got to let you go because I know you got the workout. You got to do the bench press. And then you got to get, you know, manscaped. Uh, BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem, they're up in just uh, about five minutes, folks, four and a half minutes. You'll get to hear all of the latest and greatest of, from BYU Sports Nation. We, uh, we're wrapping it up. We've taught you today a lot of things. Watch out for orange snow. Don't worry about all the yellow snow comments and everything. Orange snow, which is snow filled with the Sahara sands, uh, now in Sochi. Creamsicles. Also known as creamsicles, the the gritty kind, the gritty creamsicles. Uh, that's an important thing to remember. Plus, just uh, all of the other great insight about how to unplug when you're short on time. Awesome stuff for all of us. Now, let's get to our final segment, the hero story of the day. A grateful wife, Sue Bennett, has praised a pregnant mom for saving her husband's life by dragging him from a burning car and keeping him awake by telling him she was expecting her 10th child. Mrs. Bennett fears husband Ken would not be alive today if Tracy Archer had not been on scene when he was involved in a serious crash on a U.K. highway on Friday morning. Despite being terrified of fire, Tracy ignored the shouts to stay away and helped the injured 70-year-old out of the burning vehicle and across the road to safety. Then she made sure Ken did not slip into unconsciousness as he lay on her coat at the side of the road by keeping him talking until paramedics arrived. We are just so very grateful for her saving his life said Mrs. Bennett when the pair met so they could give Tracy a basket of flowers and Easter eggs for her children. Ken Bennett was injured in the head-on crash. She kept him alert by talking to him, and the fact that she was expecting her 10th child really didn't seem to catch his attention, although she is 70 years old. We thought that we had a big family with five children, and I think he was struggling to imagine what it would be like to have five more running around the house. Ken told me she was amazing. She She even offering him to let... Uh, him rest her head on a bump to make him laugh, on her baby bump to make him laugh. Anyway, hero of the day. How cool is that? Sue Bennett, uh, again, thanking um, Tracy Archer for saving her husband's life. That's that's pretty cool, folks. Just, you know, anybody can be a hero. You just got to be there and be willing to offer all you can give. That's all it takes, right? Well, life is good. People are good out there, and you're part of the good. Let's just continue to lift the world one uh, supportive, caring act at a time. That's our show. We'll be back again tomorrow. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.